Hello everyone, this is James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses Podcast, and we're picking back up with our exciting four-part series reading through Herbert Marcuse's 1969 essay, An Essay on Liberation. So this is his kind of manifesto about what a liberation politics looks like, written at the end of the 1960s, to kind of frame out for you. I don't need to go into who Herbert Marcuse is for all of my listeners now, especially in the middle of the series. But just to remind you, he's a huge left-wing thinker, kind of father of the new left that comes out of the 1960s. Huge influence, big book in 1964 uh, of critical theory called One Dimensional Man. Huge influence out of that. 1965, he writes an essay, called a long essay called Repressive Tolerance, which we've discussed. We, I actually read the entire thing here on the podcast, so you can go check that out. Um, the thesis of that is we must tolerate the left movements from the left, even when they're violent, we must not tolerate or extend tolerance to movements from the right, no matter what, including we must censor and even pre-censor them. Huge influence. Then we have kind of following his agitations around uh, the left of the 1960s. We have the riots breaking out in 67 and 68 and even into 69, kind of the most immediate precursor to to the mayhem of 2020 and 2021 that we're facing right now. Uh, for the same reasons. Marcuse's hot again today, even though people don't realize it. He mentored Angela Davis, for example, who was influential within black feminist circles that went on to form critical race theory and, and intersectionality. Angela Davis is still active on the left. She still works with Black Lives Matter. She works uh, primarily in the police and pl- prison abolition movement, which she's kind of a de facto thought leader of, uh, even though she's quite old now. She has all kinds of bad stuff to her name. We'll talk about Angela Davis more in the future. But today we're talking about Herbert Marcuse. And here he is after this kind of violence breaking out in the 1960s, the late 1960s, looking at what's going on, looking at what's going on around the world, and writing this essay on liberation politics, which is his goal. Now, to set the stage for you, because this is the second part in this series, We previously read the first part, which was a biological foundation for socialism with a question mark, where he argues that one of the reasons why we don't have a socialism working out so far, both having competitors in capitalism and in the failed attempts at communism that he's looking at in countries like the Soviet Union and across Europe, but he's praising at this point uh, in the late 1960s, he's praising Mao because he maybe doesn't realize that Mao's cultural revolution is a catastrophe in the in, in, in action. Um, the propaganda is probably pretty thick. He probably doesn't know, but he's praising the revolution in China. He's looking to that. A lot of things that were going on at this time were praising the revolution in China from Marxist leftist thinkers, and um, we all kind of know how that went. Possibly anywhere between <laughs> tens of, but maybe even more than 100 million people died in Mao's revolution, uh, and China has not recovered, as you would know. So he's, he's praising that, and he's saying that the reason, though, and this would explain what happened in China even, the reason that, that, that socialism turned barbaric and horrific, and the reason that capitalism is so awful and people won't give it up, is kind of the same, is that we haven't created this new biological foundation for mankind. We haven't engaged in what he calls the great refusal yet uh, of the existing order. And so even attempts at socialism become 
bureaucratic and barbarous. And so liberation requires something different. It requires us to refuse all the old ways of thinking, especially bureaucratic thinking, and just have this kind of liberated thing. And he says the way we're going to get there in the first part of this essay is that we're going to interject a new morality and cause force people to live in this new morality until they need. And he says at the biological level, but what he actually means is the psychological level. Okay. He's actually not making, or at least he says he's not making, in a footnote, he clearly states that he doesn't mean biological as in like, you know, evolution, as in like eugenics. It's pretty easy to see that he's, you know, they play with double meetings all the time, so I don't trust any of these people, and I don't think you can escape that, especially after projects like the New Soviet Man, etc. Um, and other similar movements, I mean, the eugenics stuff from the early 1900s was all throughout all of these kind of socialist movements, even National Socialism in Germany obviously took this up. These are all broadly Hegelian-based movements. Marcuse is an unabashed Hegelian. They're going to perfect mankind, blah, blah, blah. But he explicitly says he doesn't mean biological that way. He means at the level of needs for how you will actually interact with the world. So he's talking about the psychological level. And it's from reading that first part that I've more or less concluded what I think is pretty obvious, that the point of a critical theory is actually to induce various psychopathologies to make you dependent upon the critical theory way of thinking and the power base that it tries to establish to make it through life. That's what it means to need liberation. To If you read Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, you get this exact same sense. So this was written in 70 or something like that, right around the same time, published in 70 or 72 for the first time, something in that vicinity, maybe a little earlier. Maybe when it was first published in English, it was 70 or 72, but it's right in the same time period. And you see, you can read in Ferrari's book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, the exact same mentality where he's taking people who are oppressed, he's taking these peasants, and he's supposed to be this liberating educator. It's all about liberation and education for liberation. He's praising China. He's praising Castro, sort of, but said Castro didn't have what it takes. He prefers Che Guevara. He, he's quite clear on that. He, he quotes Lenin. Uh, you know, this is this is the kind of milieu we're looking at here. And what Ferrari argues is essentially that you have to take that oppression and you have to awaken more and more and more conscient, uh, consciousness of that oppression so that you can awake a revolutionary consciousness in people. In other words, you have to basically induce psychopathology. You have to make people feel like they're unable to live within, live effectively within the... Um, the the system, if you will, I guess, of society, they, the existing society, and that they can't live that way and therefore have to throw off the system. They can't become responsible and, and succeed in it because that would be a betrayal of all the other oppressed and the, that they're leaving behind. And you see this mentality, you know, in lots of places. Um, and so instead you have to teach them to, to hate the system itself. Uh, but when you can't function in everyday life in the existing society, especially when that society is a broadly free society and not actually an oppressive regime, say like North Korea or something, uh, that is the definition of psychopathology. That is the definition, is when you have various ways of thinking that actually impede your ability to get along in everyday life. So I think what Marcuse is talking about in the first part of this essay, a biological foundation for socialism, 
isn't necessarily eugenics. We do need to nod to the to the possibility of that. Uh, the Fabian Socialists are another movement that's similar to it, but not identical to, although they did help the Frankfurt School come over to the United States. Um, but they were very eugenicist. Uh, that's like George Bernard Shaw and those guys. It was a British movement. They are still active, but not directly as such. They are the London School of Economics and the RSA and the Labor Party and so on now. And they were very strongly eugenicist through the first half, at least, of the 20th century. Um, they were, in a very real sense, also what Orwell was probably nodding toward with 1984, which bears its title probably because 1984 is a century after 1884, which is when the Fabian Society was founded. But that's all kind of a distraction from what I'm trying to say. I don't think that Marcuse was advocating, necessarily advocating, but while leaving the door open for eugenics. I do think, however, that he quite clearly was saying we have to make people psychologically broken enough through critical theory, through the constant application of teaching them about how they're trapped in servitude even if they're happy and that they don't realize their misery and their servitude and that they have to be awakened to that. Uh, conscientes jao, Freire's Brazilian word for this, the awakening of this consciousness. And um, I said that once and I'll never say it again because I think I got it right. We're pretty close. So, um, well, you know how I do with foreign pronunciations. I'm so terrible. So this is anyway, this is the, the, the idea is I think that the first part of this essay is about creating psychopathology as a biological foundation for socialism is what he calls it. And then this second part is called the new sensibility. So Marcuse's idea is we're going to induce a great refusal of the existing society and all of the previous attempts of Marxism. And now we're going to introduce a new sensibility. And that new sensibility is going to allow for the liberated socialism to come about this liberated socialism, which is without bureaucracy and without tyranny and without uh, the failures of the Soviet Union and the failures that, of, of Cuba and the failures of Venezuela and the failures of Cambodia and the failures of China, which he doesn't know are happening yet, and the failures of everywhere that communism is tried, he's going to avoid it. And what it's going to happen by adopting a new sensibility and by interjecting that into the psychological and maybe biological level of humanity. Um, before I dive into reading Marcuse himself, and this is a fairly long and ten difficult section of this essay, I'll just want to bounce over here to give you that context. So this is from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is always a great resource to check on these things. Um, obviously, they're quite generous and charitable with all of these various philosophers rather than presenting the horror show that they're actually writing about. But here's what they say in the entry for Herbert Marcuse himself at the end of section seven, which is about the new sensibility and the great refusal. What they write is, this is again the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, the student protests of the 1960s were a form of great refusal, a saying no to multiple forms of repression and domination. And I said no that way because it's in caps in the quote. This great refusal demands a new liberated society. This new society requires what Marcuse calls the new sensibility, which is an ascension of the life instincts over the aggressive instincts. This idea of a new sensibility, and this, by the way, is citing um, the essay on liberation, that we're about to read, that's the citations for this section. 
This idea of a new sensibility is yet another move beyond Marxism insofar as it requires much more than new power relations. It requires the cultivation of new forms of subjectivity. So we have to understand one another in our relationship with the world completely differently because we've had this morality from critical theory interjected into us and it's formed a new biological basis. He says human subjectivity in its present form is the product of systems of domination. And that's what Marcuse is saying we have to get away from, okay? So human subjectivity in its present form is the product of systems of domination. We rid society of its systems of domination by ridding it of all the forms of subjectivity formed by those systems and replacing them with new forms of subjectivity. This is why Marcuse was so interested in the feminist movement. He saw in this movement the potential for a radical social change. The process of rethinking femininity and masculinity could be the beginning of redefining male subjectivity so that it develops in a way that males become less aggressive. The cultivation of a new sensibility would transform the relationship between human beings and nature, as well as the relationships among human beings. The new sensibility is the medium of social change that mediates between the political practice of changing the world and one's own drive for personal liberation. So now you know what this new sensibility is all about. It's going to be a completely new way to think about the world. Following the great refusal of all of the existing systems, which are all oppressive, the United States oppressive, Canada oppressive, Western Europe oppressive, everything oppressive, 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 everything, according to a repressive tolerance from four years earlier, is fascism about to break out. Everything, according to Marcuse, is oppression and that the consumerist capitalist society is tricking people into thinking that they're not actually oppressed, that they actually like their lives, that they actually have opportunity, that that upward mobility, that cool swag they can buy, their middle class lifestyle, their houses, their neighborhoods, their, their barbecues, all of that, that's all a ruse that prevents them from seeing that they actually live in servitude, frankly, because they're not communists. And this is going to be the communism that actually works. And the new sensibility is understanding that and thinking about it. And that's what this section of the essay is about. So let's dive into Herbert Marcuse himself and see how wonderful this new sensibility is. The new sensibility, he writes, has become a political factor. This event, which may well indicate a turning point in the evolution of contemporary societies, demands that critical theory incorporate the new dimension into its concepts, project its implications for the possible construction of a free society. I'm not exactly sure if I'm mispronouncing project here for this. Uh, yeah, okay. So I'll just reread this sentence, I, I suppose. This event, uh, which may well indicate a turning point in the evolution of contemporary societies, demands that critical theory incorporate the new dimension into its concepts, project its implications for the possible construction of a free society. So critical theory is going to be the basis to build this new sensibility to construct a new, new society. And he says this, is a, this indicates a turning point in the evolution of contemporary societies. Turns out he was right. Look at what's going on in the world. Critical theory has basically ruined everything. Um, and it's now bearing fruit. Here we are, uh, do the math real quick, 52 years later after this was being written, it's bearing fruit and it's not working out. But he thinks it's going to be great. Such a society, he writes, presupposes throughout the achievements of the existing societies, especially their scientific 
and technical achievements. Released from their service and the cause of exploitation, this is a very Marxian kind of way of thinking, they could be mobilized for the global elimination of poverty and toil. True, this redirection of the intellectual and material production already presupposes the revolution in the capitalist world. The theoretical projection seems to be fatally premature, were it not for the fact that the awareness of the transcendent possibilities of freedom must become a driving power and the consciousness and the imagination which prepare the soil for this revolution. The latter will be essentially different and effective precisely to the degree to which it is carried forward by this power. The new sensibility which expresses the ascent of the life instincts over aggressiveness and guilt. <laughs> that didn't work out, did it? The whole thing's built on guilt. But life instincts. So he's talking about we're going to have this free communistic life where all we care about is everybody being happy and everybody being fulfilled and everybody being self-actualized in the way that the communists fully believe that their crackpot theory is going to lead to everybody being because they don't have to work. They're not forced to work. And everything's very, uh, you know, organized. There's no competition. Nobody's unequal. Nobody's having to look at other people better than them. So this is the, fostering the life instincts, whereas aggressiveness and guilt follow from the, say, Western society and competition and the Protestant work ethic and all of this. Uh, you're not working hard enough. You know, you, somebody's out comp competing you or you're going to outcompete that bastard. So you're going to be aggressive and people want to go to war. And, and when we have one world communism, there will be no wars, of course, because everything will be one world communism. So, you know, all of the different competing countries are going to go to war with one another in their own greed and their aggression. And he thinks that, you know, global communism is the answer to this, of course. And so this would, for him, communism means the life instincts. This is how the communists think. They think that true life only exists when we get to their utopia. And everything is a project of history to get to that point in which we participate. So he says the new sensibility which expresses the ascent of the life instincts over aggressiveness and guilt would foster on a social scale the vital need for the abolition of injustice and misery and would shape the further evolution of the standard of living. So what is this new sensibility where we all start to think of ourselves in the terms of the potentials of communism going to bring to us well well it's going to bring about you know it it, it it arises and brings about on the social scale the vital need for the abolition of injustice and misery so we have to get rid of all injustice and all misery um, and that's what we need most of all we can't suffer things can't be unfair according to their definitions remember this is based in critical theory so their definition of injustice is going to be operative. Their definition of misery, which might include microaggressions or everything not being perfectly inclusive to their standards as they want, them not having power is miserable for them. They're not getting their way. Again, with the psychopathologies at the root of this, which I cannot get away from thinking about, these are miserable people. They are depressed people. They are paranoid people. They're miserable people most of the time. And that's what's got to be abolished, is whatever it is in the society that makes them miserable. That will shape the further evolution of the standard of living because, you know, communist societies have been so successful at raising the standard of living, you know, raising it to starvation and no choice and bread lines and, and mass death. Um, so it's not a very realistic plan according to what's really going to happen, but this is the vision in which this is planted. This is the new sensibility we're all supposed to have. Again, it's the awakening of the critical consciousness that he's really after here in this 
as part of that is the realization that they all believe in that there's a perfect utopia on the other side of exposing all the contradictions of real life, including injustice and misery in a world that's supposed to have a high standard of living. There's a contradiction that needs to be dialectically taken apart. Life instincts versus aggressive instincts and guilt. That's another one that needs to be taken apart. So he says the life instincts would find rational expression, sublimation, in planning the distribution of the socially necessary labor time within and among the various branches of production, thus setting priorities of goals and choices, not only what to produce, but also the form of the product. See, so your life instincts are going to say, what do, what do humans really need? Remember, it's this whole communist idea. You know, um, what, what do humans really need? That's all we're going to produce. And we're going to produce it according to everybody's need, and everybody can take according uh, to what, what they need from that. So not only, though, he says, you know, we're going to, we're going to set all of the... <laughs> people are going to find rational expression of their life instincts by figuring it, by, by engaging in the project of central planning. Which is really funny because decentralized planning, aka the market, is how that actually works in reality. But we're going to express our life instincts, not by pursuing our own happiness, not by engaging with the uh, production and sale of our own talents and, and, and property, um, but rather through participating in the collective, centrally planned, socially necessary labor time economy. Therefore, nobody's ever going to get exploited, of course. That's the whole thing, Marxist exploitation. And we're going, to, we're going to find our life instincts in that. That's the new sensibility. And that'll lead us to set priorities and goals uh, of goals and choices, not only of what to produce, like all three hats that were available in the Soviet Union, but also the form of the product. So we're not going to, he complains about planned obsolescence. He complains about, you know, flashy things. He complains about things that don't enrich the spirit according to what he thinks is supposed to enrich the spirit all the time. And so we're going to now produce things according to a planned out scientific, aka Marxist way, and that, that the product will be very good that way. It'll be very standard. It'll be excellent. It'll be per perfect expression of human life instincts, the centrally planned project. So, so again, we have the misunderstanding of what the market actually produces for people, what the market actually achieves. But this is what Marcuse is talking about. Well, we need this new sensibility where the market's bad, and the central planning as is good, and people who participate in it are actually sublimating their life instincts and getting away from aggressiveness and guilt as a result. The liberated consciousness, Marcuse tells us, would promote the development of a science and technology free to discover and realize the possibilities of things and men in the protection and gratification of life, playing with the potentialities of form and matter for the attainment of this goal. Technique would then tend to become art, and art would tend to form reality. Very high-minded and sweeping. The opposition, he says, between imagination and reason, higher and lower faculties, poetic and scientific thought, would be invalidated. So everything's going to be great. There's no opposition, there's no contradiction, there's no dialectic anymore between imagination and reason. If you can imagine it, it makes sense. You have to imagine your own reality live your own reality and speak your own reality. The difference between the higher and lower faculties, probably Rousseauian reason versus uh, emotion. Poetic and scientific thought. No, oh, no difference. Those would be invalidated. Poetry is considered actually a method in a lot of these, uh, these uh, critical social justice theories. 
poetic inquiry was one of the things that we targeted with our faked papers in the Grievance Studies Affair, as a matter of fact. Emergence, Marcuse tells us, of a new reality principle under which a new sensibility and a desublimated scientific intelligence would combine in the creation of an aesthetic ethos. So there would no longer be any differences between the aesthetic and the scientific. We would just live in this perfect morass of wonderfully perfect desublimated scientific intelligence and thought. And that will be the new reality principle. Not that reality will kick your ass if you get it wrong. Not that reality having absolutely no stake in you or anything to do with you will kill you if you are completely wrong. And it won't do so out of anger. It won't do so out of any emotion whatsoever. It won't do so remorselessly. It doesn't even, it's a category error to even apply a emotional content. Reality just is. But the new reality principle will give us a new sensibility and a desublimated, sci desublimated scientific intelligence that would co combine in the creation of an aesthetic ethos. So dreamy, so fake, so going to lead to the deaths of millions. So liberated from reality. Liberation. Essay on liberation. The term aesthetic and its dual connotation of pertaining to the senses and pertaining to art may serve to designate. They love to play in the words, right? This is speculative philosophy. This is speculative philosophy. They love to play in words and say, oh, look at this mystical double meaning. Let's play in the double meaning. Let's explore that double meaning. This is where... Uh, where um, Hegel got taken up with Alfhaben, which of course is a word that Marcuse uses all the time, Alfhaben, to lift up, to keep, to destroy or abolish. All at the same time, what a mystical word. Turns out um, that, uh, I'd have to look up the name again, I want to do this on a, in another podcast, Hegel was actually looking back to one of his favorite mentors who was analyzing Rousseau's idea about... Um, the savages, as it were, colonial language, trigger warning, versus the civilized city dwellers, and was trying to figure out how to combine. Rousseau wanted to imagine the savages made to live in cities, a noble savage who can live in a city. That's what he thought was the ideal, where you're combining emotion and reason, rationality and instinct into this perfect thing. And then, uh, it's a really famous name in German philosophy that precedes Hegel's Schelling or no Schleiermacher, one of them. I don't know. I have to look it up again. Um, I'm not a philosopher. That's okay. That's why I don't get these things wrong. Um, he saw that and applied the word Alfhaben to what Rousseau was looking at. And he thought, wow, you know, to abolish, but to keep and to lift up to a higher level. The savage that lives in cities, combining all of these features, not too rational, but not too instinctual, not too reasonable, but not too emotive. Perfect combination of both. The savage, the noble savage that lives in the city. That's the goal. That's the thing. And uh, it's killing me that I can't think of the guy's name. Called this Alfhaben. And when Hegel read this, he was taken by that word. And that's where he said this word has speculative and mystical content. And so playing in words and double meanings of words and screwing around in double meanings of words to confuse yourself is sort of the dialectical process that these people love to do. So the term aesthetic 
Marcuse writes, in its dual connotation of pertaining to the senses and pertaining to art, may serve to designate the quality of the productive creative process in an environment of freedom. Technique, assuming the features of art, would translate subjective sensibility into objective form, into reality. This is again Hegel's dialectic. Subjective and objective are opposites that have to be dialectically synthesized into something higher, into the concrete or to the absolute. Subjective and objective gain their uh, difference and similarity under the concept of the absolute and into reality, into the concrete. So this is, again, just... Hegelian mishmash. This would be the sensibility of men and women, tells us Marcuse, who do not have to be ashamed of themselves anymore because they have overcome their sense of guilt. They have learned not to identify themselves with the false fathers who have built and tolerated and forgotten the Auschwitzes and Vietnams of history, the torture chambers of all the secular and ecclesiastical inquisitions and interrogations, the ghettos and the monumental temples of corporations, and who have worshipped the higher culture of this reality. Remember, those are the false fathers, right? So this is kind of toxic masculinity he's describing in 1969, well before that term comes in. And men and women don't have to identify or be ashamed and why he's ashamed of this i have no idea but don't have to be ashamed of this anymore and can be freed of that by reaching into this new artistic reality sensibility that he's talking about uh if and when he says men and women act and think free from this identification they will have broken the chain which linked the fathers and the sons from generation to generation. They will have not redeemed the crimes against humanity, but they will have become free to stop them and to prevent their recommencement. Chance of reaching the point of no return to the past. If and when the causes are eliminated which have made the history of mankind the history of domination and servitude. The causes are economic, political, but since they have shaped the very instincts and needs of men, no economic and political changes will bring this historical continuum to a stop unless they are carried through by men who are physiologically and psychologically able to experience things and each other outside of the context of violence and exploitation. So he's basically saying that the entire history of the world, from fathers to sons, generation to generation, is a history of domination and servitude, of violence and exploitation. Nothing good. That's, this is the critical theory way of looking at all of history. This is what history is, as a matter of fact, is the march of domination and servitude, of violence and exploitation, rather than communistic cooperation, of course. Competition versus cooperation. And so he says, even though these causes are economic and political, they have already shaped the very instincts and needs of men. It's not that men operate in a competitive world because competition is actually a principle of how things operate in the world and that cooperation facilitates co competition as a matter of fact. It is in fact the other way around for Marcuse. He completely misunderstands human nature. He completely understands the nature itself, of course, because he's a communist. And his argument is that these economic and political conditions have already shaped the very instincts and needs of men so that we can't just change the economics and politics. That's why communism has failed in the past. That's why people cling to the capitalism that's giving them a middle-class happy existence, 
No, we have to instead find men who are physiologically and psychologically able to experience things in each other in a different context entirely under this new sensibility that he's trying to lay out here. This is very new Soviet man stuff. That's how we're going to get to liberation. The new sensibility, he says, has become by this very token, praxis. So that's a fun word. We've been talking about praxis a lot lately now that we've had lots of people lie to us about critical race theory and say critical race theory is not in our schools, but we all know that critical race praxis is. If you read any critical pedagogy, or in other words, critical theory of education book, you see the word praxis, 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 praxis everywhere. If you read Henry Giroux, one of the leading critical pedagogists, he says that the point of praxis is in fact to awaken consciousness to make more so-called democratic citizens. But we know that communists, including in this essay, presuppose communism to have democracy. So awakening that new sensibility is the project of praxis. The new sensibility has become by this very token praxis. It is the putting into application a critical theory. A critical theory has three components by definition. All three must be there. It must hold up an idealized vision of a, let's say, liberated society for this essay. It must complain about how the existing society does not satisfy that and is not on the track to become that. And then it must inspire social activism. It must put that theory into practice in order to change the world. The point is not to understand the world, but to change it according to Marx. That's praxis. The new sensibility has become, by this very token, praxis. He writes, it emerges in the struggle against violence and exploitation where this struggle is waged for essentially new ways and new forms of life. Negation of the entire establishment, its morality, culture. Affirmation of the right to build a society in which the abolition of poverty and toil terminates in a universe where the sensuous, the playful, the calm, and the beautiful become forms of existence, and thereby the capital F form, so we're talking Neoplatonism here, of the society itself. This is an insane paragraph, but it tells you what this is actually about. The new sensibility has become praxis. Thinking in the way that he wants you to think so that we can become liberated is a practice, is a religion, it is a belief system that you have to change yourself psychologically and maybe physiologically and maybe biologically in order to adopt. And it emerges, he says, in the struggle against violence and exploitation, looking for entirely new forms and ways of life. He says we have to negate the entire establishment and its morality and culture. Alf Haben der Kultur, that was George Lukács' idea of what had to happen in order for cultural Marxism to march the West into communism. You have to negate Alfaben, the entire culture, with its morality, the entire establishment. That's what he's talking about. And instead, we're going to affirm the right to build a society. The right to build one? Why just don't build one? Why don't you just offer a better thing? No, of course not. We have to get everybody in line. And what are we going to do in that society? We're going to abolish poverty and toil. Well, that's not even real. That's absolutely not real. Look at any communist project. That's not going to happen. But it's not even possible. It's not even possible. The abolition of toil. Like, they think we're going to be in, like, some kind of communist Wally, -E? Like, the robot cartoon? Like, what are they talking about? And the abolition, he says, of poverty and toil terminates in a universe. The end of history. The end of history, that's what Hegel was after, that's what Marx was after. The end of history for Marx was communism. The end of history for Hegel was when the 
the absolute is immunitized, or the, the eschaton is immunitized as the absolute realizes itself, as it comes to know itself fully as absolute and therefore deity through the dialectical process of the other that it created against itself. By the way, that is hermeticism, that is alchemy. That is Hegel's alchemy. That's what, that's what Marcus is talking about here. And what's going to happen when we get to this liberated utopia? Well, the sensuous, the playful, the calm, and the beautiful become forms of existence, and thereby the form of society itself. So we're going to live in this perfect society where the playful, the calm, the beautiful sounds great. The sensuous, it's really funny that he throws it in there because, you know, you read Eros and Civilization, Marcuse's 1955 work, where he tried to mix Marx and Freud into a single concept, which is a task, and you just get this overwhelming impression that the guy wants to have orgies. And you even heard this, men and women don't have to be ashamed anymore. I mean, there's, there's stuff going on here. This is what's really going on underneath the surface with him. The aesthetic, Marcuse writes, as the possible form, capital F, form, platonic or neoplatonic form, again, we're digging into alchemy stuff, of a free society appears at that stage of development where the intellectual and material resources for the conquest of scarcity are available. So we have to get to the point where the intellectual material resources for the conquest of scarcity are available. We have to have high enough tech, basically. Think about what's going on in the world right now, by the way. You have to have high enough tech to be able to produce for people where people don't have to do much of the work and nobody as a result of say equity programs and redistribution will have uh, any scarcity that they face. That's when this aesthetic, this is when this is possible according to Marcuse writing in 1969, here we are 52 years later, this Great Reset thing is attempting this. He says, where previously progressive repression turns into regressive suppression. Where the higher culture in which the aesthetic values and the aesthetic truth had been monopolized and segregated from the reality, collapses and dissolves in desublimated lower and destructive forms. Where the hatred of the young bursts into laughter and song, mixing the barricade and the dance floor, love play, and heroism. And the young also attack the esprit de seru in the socialist camp, mini skirts against the apparatchiks, rock and roll against Soviet realism. The insistence that a socialist society can and ought to be light, pretty, playful, that these qualities are essential elements of freedom, the faith in the rationality of the imagination, the demand for a new morality and culture. Does this great anti-authoritarian rebellion indicate a new dimension and direction of radical change, the appearance of new agents of radical change, and a new vision of socialism and its qualitative difference from the established societies? Is there anything in the aesthetic dimension which has an essential affinity with the freedom not only in its sublimated cultural artistic, but also in its desublimated political existential form, so that the aesthetic can become a something in German. <laughs> uh oh. Gesellschaftliche Produktivkraft, a factor in the technique of production, horizon under which the material and intellectual needs develop. I might have translated that. Uh, Maybe not, though. I may have skipped that one. I've translated many of his things. There's a lot of foreign in this uh, particular section. So um, I'm guessing that productive craft means a 
productive activity. Gelschaftliche. Uh, I'm not sure what the hell that means, but something obviously fake. He's basically talking about hippie party culture becoming the form of society in 1969. What a big surprise! So he has this idea that you know we're gonna we're gonna break away from from the spirit of work. We're gonna have uh, this whole new world, mini skirts against the apparat- apparatchiks, rock and roll against Soviet realism, pretty light, playful, and it's all going to be rooted in the faith and the rationality of the imagination and the demand for a new morality and culture. So he's looking at the hippies and the radicals of the, of the late 1960s and thinking, this if we could just make this everything and everybody, it would be great. The problem is, of course, you got to figure out who's producing stuff. And that's where he says we have to have those material and intellectual resources to conquer scarcity, which is a wonderful dream that's not real. Scarcity will always exist, even if it's only relative scarcity. Um, and scarcity of willing to obtain, to do the work to obtain seems to be a problem he's not really analyzing. And the, the scarcity of tolerance for people who are free riding is, again, something these guys never really look into. He thinks everybody can just be happy watching the uh, unfair distribution of goods and services uh, under a redistribution scheme like equity or communism. Anyway, what's he right? Throughout the centuries, the analysis of the aesthetic dimension focused on the idea of the beautiful. Does this idea express the aesthetic ethos, which provides the common denominator of the aesthetic and the political? As desired object, the beautiful pertains to the domain of the primary instincts, eros and thanatos, so lust and death. The mythos, uh, they talk, by the way, a lot in terms of these uh, mythological figures, these archetypes. Uh, The mythos links the adversary's pleasure and terror. So that's eros and thanatos, but otherwise pleasure and terror. That's how he's looking at it. Beauty has the power to check aggression. It forbids and immobilizes the aggressor. The beautiful Medusa petrifies him who confronts her. It's really interesting. My friend Mike Nana, many of you would know from the Grievance Studies of Fair Work, and I have talked for a long time that the way that the critical theory operates is very much like Medusa. It's very toxic female energy that paralyzes people, puts them on their heels. They don't know how to respond. They've been accused of things. They're told that they're stupid. They're told that they're racist. They're told that they're bad. Paralyzes you and turns you to stone. And then... Medusa, beautiful as she is, turns out to be a monster, and that's the point. But here Medusa is invoked. The beautiful Medusa petrifies him who confronts her. Quote, Poseidon, the god with azure locks, slept with her in a soft meadow on a bed with springtime flowers. So he's waxing very poetically about the eros, uh, the eroticism around the idea of Medusa. She is slain by Perseus, he writes. And from her truncated body springs the winged horse Pegasus, symbol of poetic imagination. Kinship of the beautiful, the divine, the poetic, but also kinship of the beautiful and unsublimated joy. Subsequently, the classical aesthetic, while insisting on the harmonious union of sensuousness, imagination, and reason, and the beautiful, equally insisted on the objective ontological character of the beautiful as the capital F form in which man and nature come into their own fulfillment. Kant asks whether there is not a hidden connection between beauty and perfection, both capitalized. And Nietzsche notes, quote, the beautiful as the mirror of the logical, 
that is, the laws of logic, are the ob object of the laws of the beautiful. For the artist, Marcuse is telling us again, the beautiful is mastery of the opposites, quote, without tension, so that the violence is no longer need so that violence is no longer needed. He says the beautiful has the biological value of that which is useful, beneficial, and enhancing life. So he waxes lyrical about the beautiful. I've ar argued that the Greek ideal of beauty is 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 the way to go. Um, that which is excellent in what it is attempting to be. Which would kind of make sense out of some of what he's saying. You know, he's saying basically that that the uh, where is it that the objective becomes the objective ontological character of the beautiful as the form in which man and nature come into their own fulfillment. Uh, he's he's actually you know things have to a theory that works or a technology that works is beautiful in the fact that it works. But this is just a waxing lyrical of nonsense because he's just basically trying to use it to puff up the idea that we all should live in a perfect hippie world where everything's paid for for us all. Free love, man. Peace. By virtue of these qualities, he tells us, the aesthetic dimension can serve as a sort of gauge for a free society, a universe of human relationship no longer mediated by the market. So he wants to get away from money, he wants to get away from capitalism, he wants to get away from the market. Everything's just going to work out. We're all just going to be happy, sensuous, playful, light hippies in our mini skirts with our rock and roll. And everything's going to be fantastic because we don't need a market anymore because all of our, our technological and material resources are going to be sufficient to conquer scarcity in communist la-la land. So a, a universe of human relationships no longer mediated by the market, as if that's how humans really interact. Like, we participate in the market, but I don't think that most human relationships are mediated by the market. I think people just hang out, right? But anyway, no longer based on competitive exploitation or terror. Well, you know, that works out okay until somebody else comes along and destroys your whole little commune because they either used terror or they outcompeted you and ran you into the ground. Um, gave you no options. You think his, the, the communists always think that we can just get everybody on board and kill everybody who doesn't participate, and then you know, then we can have communes everywhere and everything will work out great. We would have no terror or competitive exploitation. We'd have nothing like you know another country coming in with its guns and its bombs, and and killing us all because we're asleep at the wheel playing around in our hippie communes. They're, they're totally delusional about the realities of a competitive world. They think we can overcome all of that just, say, by conquering scarcity. We just conquered scarcity. Nobody would possibly want more. We just need to have a new sensibility where nobody ever wants more, and we're all content with exactly what the controlled, uh, centrally planned production facility makes for us, and we have no toil, and it's great, and we can all be hippies and sensual and light and love and miniskirts and rock and roll. A universe of human relationships no longer mediated by the market, no longer based on competitive exploitation or terror, demands a sensitivity freed from the repressive satisfactions of the unfree societies. So here we're dipping back to Eros and Civilization, his 1955 book. He says that what's going on, and that book, his thesis is that what's going on is that human beings at work in capitalist societies are repressing their, their libido. They're repressing their desire to satisfy and fulfill themselves so that they can do productive work. And in fact, they're turning that repression into productive work. And that's what makes the societies unfree. This is Marx mixed with Freud. That was the goal of Eros and Civilization in 1955. That's the point. That's what he's saying. We have to be freed. We need a sensitivity freed from that. We're going to think differently from that. People shouldn't ever have to repress their satisfactions 
because that limits their freedom. They shouldn't ever have to do something they don't want. They shouldn't ever have to get up in the morning and show up and do some hard work because people need to have things done if, say, they want to be able to eat or if they want to catch that plane or if we don't want the plane to crash into another plane or to land in the wrong place or something horrible. These, he says, they are the claims of the human organism, mind and body, for a dimension of fulfillment which can be created only in the struggle against the institutions, which by their very functioning deny and violate these claims. So he says this total libertine freedom is the claim of the human organism, mind and body, for a dimension of fulfillment that can only be created in the struggle against the institutions that are stopping you. You know, the damn air traffic controllers and their institution are stopping you by their very functioning, by the fact you have to show up to work. They're stopping you from those claims of libidinous joy and fulfillment in the aesthetic imagination, which we're going to equate with rationality. This is a literally insane document. The very functioning of the air traffic controllers denies and violates these claims you have on a perfect, we'll say, hippie life. The radical social content, he writes, of the aesthetic needs becomes evident as the demand for their most elementary satisfaction is translated into group action on an enlarged scale. From the harmless drive for better zoning regulations and a modicum of protection from noise and dirt, to the pressure for closing of, a, of whole city areas to automobiles, prohibition of transistor radios in all public places, decommercialization of nature, total urban reconstruction control of the birth rate. Such action would become increasingly subversive of the institutions of capitalism and of their morality. Did you catch what he wants there? We're going to have a totally radical social content, a new aesthetic. It's going to become more and more evident as we progress into how great this hippie commune we're all going to live in and liberated socialism is going to be with no bureaucracies. Socialism with no bureaucracies and no brutality. And we're going to start with better zoning regulations, a modicum of protection from noise and dirt, and then maybe the pressure to close entire areas of cities to automobiles. We're going to prohibit noise-making transistor radios in all public spaces so that, obviously, whatever other sounds, we're not going to have to hear other people's music. We're not going to have to hear... Uh, Anything like that, you know, we won't have to hear pop music in particular, given these guys. We'll decommercialize nature. We'll have total urban reconstruction. We'll control the birth rate. That's what would subvert capitalism and its morality. We just did that. The quantity of such reforms would turn into the quality of radical change to the degree to which they would critically weaken the economic, political, and cultural pressure and the power groups which have a vested interest in preserving the environment and ecology of profitable merchandising. I told you, this is an insane document. The aesthetic morality is the opposite of Puritanism. Well, that's what he says. It does <laughs> Post-comedy is sort of a... Is that what it's called, post-comedy, when, when it's like comedy's not supposed to be funny anymore, it's just a critical theory lecture? Um, that's the opposite of Puritanism, though, of course, right? Because it's libidinous. It's going to free the libido. It's going to be hippies, free love, peace, man. That's what it's going to be all about. It's going to be orgies and, and drugs and, and everybody wearing whatever they want to wear and never having to go to work. Everybody partying. We're going to have, I guess, concerts, but no transistor radios. And we won't have automobiles in, in parts of the wide 
parts of the city and we'll get rid of the birth rate. Uh, we just won't have babies. And then imagine how great that will be. It won't be Puritan at all. He says it does not insist on a daily bath or shower for people whose cleaning practices involve systematic torture, slaughtering, and poisoning. You see that little, this is a thing he does kind of a lot. Marcuse is a total nut job. It's totally unfair. So he says, no, 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 what I'm, I'm advising is not Puritanism. It doesn't insist on a daily bath or shower. Well, it's hippies, of course. For people, and then he just says, daily bath or shower, and then he goes to like the most evil thing he can think of. For people whose cleaning practices involve systematic torture, slaughtering, and poisoning. Like, I guess the shampoo manufacturers or something involve systematic torture, slaughtering, and poisoning. Nor does it insist on clean clothes for men who are professionally engaged in dirty deals. <laughs> this is not the stupidest thing you've ever heard. So if you're going to engage in dirty deals, ye mafia, iron law of woke corruption, if you're going to engage in dirty deals, make sure to wear dirty clothes too. But it does insist on cleaning the earth from the very material garbage produced by the spirit of capitalism and from this spirit itself. And it insists on freedom as a biological necessity, being physically incapable of tolerating any repression other than that required for the protection and, and amelioration of life. You know, what most people outside of communist la-la land here would say is that we pretty much don't tolerate in free societies any repression other than that minimally required for the protection and amelioration of life. That's basically what the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are about, and the Bill of Rights. That's what the founding documents of the United States, which Marcuse is literally railing against in almost all of his work, are about. But it insists on that freedom as a biological necessity, but it has to look more like a hippie commune than like the free and productive world where people have infinite ways to pursue meaning in their life, infinite ways to pursue their interests, infinite ways to do whatever they want. You don't have a state telling you what you have to think or believe. Liberalism doesn't provide meaning. Boo-hoo, it's not supposed to. It provides you the opportunity to go find your own path to meaning. And Marcuse is like, well, here's one. Let's have, a, let's have this fever dream of a perfect world, liberated, a new sensibility of literally nonsense. Okay, so back to Marcuse. When Kant, in his third critique, all but obliterated the frontiers between sensibility and imagination, he recognized the extent to which the senses are productive, creative, the extent to which they, they have a share in producing the images of freedom, for its part, the imagination depends on the senses, which provide the experiential material out of which the imagination creates its realm of freedom, by transforming the objects and relationships which have been the data of the senses and which have been formed by the senses. The freedom of the imagination is thus restrained by the order of the sensibility, not only by its pure forms of space and time, but also by its empirical content which, as the object world to be transcended, remains a determining factor in the transcendence. <laughs> Catch all that? <laughs> the, it's again, it's like we're going to get away from reality, basically, is what he's arguing. He's, he's invoking Kant and Kant's critiques. Kant was one of the great systematic idealists of German philosophy. So we're going to jump out of reality into idealism, into the ideal world of forms, uh, perfected ideals. We're going to perfect the ideals in the, in the world. We're going to destroy, he says, the boundary between uh, the, the sensible 
and imagination. And because the sensible is what's killing us. That's his idea. That is what we're being liberated from, is sensibility. Because it limits the imagination. That's what he's arguing. The imagination depends on the senses. So he's playing on a double meaning of sensible. Sensible meaning like rational, makes sense. And the senses, sensuous is the word we usually use for that, which provide the experiential material out of which the imagination creates its realm of freedom. We can imagine a more free world just by transforming the objects and relationships, he says, which have been the data of the senses and which have been formed by the senses. The freedom of the imagination is thus restrained by the order of the sensibility. So we need a new sensibility. That's his argument. Not only by its pure forms, he says, like space and time, but by its empirical content. The imagination is restrained by the order of the sensibility, including its empirical content. In other words, what it really is. That is what needs to be tr transcended. We need to step beyond the world as it actually is because that restrains our imagination and its full freedom. That's the argument. That's what liberation is about. Liberation from reality into a utopia. Whatever beautiful or sublime, he writes, pleasurable or terrifying forms of reality the imagination may project, they are derived, that's in scare quotes, from sensuous experience. However, the freedom of the imagination is restrained not only by the sensibility, but also at the other pole of the organic structure by the rational faculty of man, his reason. The freedom of the imagination is restrained by the sensibility, meaning what is sensible and not sensible, including its empirical content, its tied, its tether to reality, but also on the other pole by man's ability to reason in the first place. Reason is limiting the imagination. Logic, logic prohibits a full freedom of the imagination. The most daring images of a new world, he writes, of new ways of life are still guided by concepts and by a logic elaborated in the development of thought, transmitted from generation to generation. On both sides, that of the sensibility and that of reason, history enters into the projects of the imagination, for the world of the senses is a historical world, and the reason is the conceptual mastery and interpretation of the historical world. So we're very Hegelian again at this point. History is happening. History is around us. History is, is what's going on. History enters into the projects of the imagination in the ideal realm, where that's very Hegelian. We're going to go into the ideal realm. We're going to work on the ideas. We're going to hit their contradictions against one another. Sensibility and reason are the limits. We've got to figure out ways to transcend those. We're going to perfect the ideas, and then that is going to bring us into a new, transcendent, more perfected world. This is the dialectical alchemy at the heart of the Hegelian and thus critical theory project. Marcuse continues, the order and organization of class society, which have shaped the sensibility and the reason of man, have also shaped the freedom of the imagination. So he's going to lay the blame for man being as man is, competitive, aggressive, guilt-ridden, whatever, at the feet of class society, because he's an effing communist. But class society by this point is a more complicated concept than Marx and Engels laid out in, say, the Communist Manifesto or Capital. This is a more complex class society now isn't just capitalist class, although it's mostly bound up for somebody like Marcuse, who's going to be a neo-Marxist, not a Marxist. This Remember, we read in the Sanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, this goes beyond Marxism. Okay, so, so now we're in a new realm. 
of class, where class is the cultured versus the uncultured, those who are privileged by the power dynamics of society and those who are oppressed by them. So class is becoming more complex and, and, and rarefied. It's not just economic class. It's not the bourgeoisie and the proletariat any longer. It's more complicated. It's people who have uh, cultured values versus people who don't. People who have money versus people who don't. That's the capitalist side into the neo-Marxist side, a cultural Marxist side. But it's also from Marcuse at this point. He's very interested in feminism. He's very interested in the so-called ghetto populations and what use they have for this revolution. So he's now looking at class in terms of male versus female, black versus white, or white versus, I should say, um, the various people of color, especially black, etc. The order and organization of class society which have shaped the sensibility and the reason of man. So they shape how what we think is sensible. They've, they've created kind of a hegemonic view of, of how the world works, and they've shaped our reason. We, it's not the other way around, right? Again, Marcuse gets how he doesn't understand human nature. He has it backwards. He lives in la-la land and thinks everyone should live in la-la land. He says that these the class society has shaped the sensibility, which partly is, I mean, there's a kernel of truth there, in the reason of man. Now, reason is what's been allowing us to transcend that, to see people as equals, for example, uh, across these boundaries of class, whether that's one type of class or another. If you look at the, the, the roots of the Declaration of Independence, for example, where all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that came from the British and Scottish Enlightenment, which was a very rationalistic uh, movement. That was the thing that, in fact, Rousseau, if we kind of circle back to Rousseau, that's what he was rejecting with his attempt to try to Alfhaben his way to savages who live in cities. It was the rationality of especially the British Enlightenment and the Scottish Enlightenment, which were unfolding at the time in the mid-18th century that Rousseau was looking at and reacting to and saying, this is terrible, this is bad. He's reading missives from various... Um, colonists, the priests who are on colonial missions, and he's, he's misinterpreting them. And this is what Rousseau's engaged with in thinking, oh, well, we're too rational of a society, and this is why things aren't working out. And this is exactly what Marcuse is tapping into. Again, Rousseau, as interpreted through Hegel, down to Marcuse. Also, Marx is in the middle of there somewhere. These things have shaped, he says, the freedom of the imagination. It had its controlled play in the sciences, pure and applied, and its autonomous play in poetry, fiction, the arts. So science gets to, you have play in the sciences, pure and applied, but it's controlled play, meaning the uh, freedom of the imagination. So the imagination had its controlled play in the sciences and its autonomous play in poetry, fiction, the arts. Between the dictates of instrumentalist reason on the one hand, in a sense, experience mutilated by the realizations of this reason on the other. The power of the imagination was repressed. It was free to become practical, that is, to transform reality only within the general framework of repression. You see that? You see what he did? Okay, so he says that... Uh, the power of the imagination was repressed here between the dictates of instrumentalist reason on the one hand and the sense experience. It's not, it's not even sense experience, but sense experience mutilated by the realizations of this reason. That has repressed the power of the imagination. So the imagination was now free to become practical, and that's it. And what does practical mean? It is to transform reality only within 
the limits already given by repression. So he's saying that reason, rationality, and sensibility are locking people into an oppressive system. And that's the thing that has to be destroyed so that we can get to a liberated system. Beyond these limits, he writes, the practice of the imagination was violation of taboos and social morality. Again, you get this real impression that the guy was into orgies and other kinds of things, sexual things, practices that are probably somewhere in the realm of taboos and against social morality, was perversion and subversion. That's what he says, right? Imagination, the practice of the imagination beyond the limits of repression that he's defined as sensibility, reason, etc., was the violation of taboos and social morality. Perversion and subversion. In the great historical revolutions, the imagination was for a short period released and free to enter into the projects of a new social morality and of the new institutions of freedom. Then it was sacrificed to the requirements of effective reason. So he's wanting to lay reason on the altar and sacrifice it so that he can have freedom of the imagination. And then he even invokes the great historical revolutions. And you have to think he's thinking of the French one here. The imagination was for a short period released and free to enter into the projects of a new social morality. I mean, Robespierre's project was a nightmare. Maybe they were very free. Maybe they had all kinds of fun sexual stuff going on or whatever it is that Marcuse's got in mind in the back of his head here. But it was a bloodbath, and it failed utterly, and it turned into another bloodbath as a result. It wasn't a good time. Reign of terror, not a good time. So Marcuse here is, you know, invoking that kind of that kind of stuff, and I think he's kind of like happy about it, right? That's where the freedom of the imagination finally got to got to come into play. And if that was a little bit of an awkward transition, my power went out, and I had to figure out how to re-record, and I kind of lost my train of thought a little bit. Power came back in now. Um, so he's blaming, like I said, reason. He's put reason on the, on the altar. This is exactly what happened in the French Revolution. So he's talking about in the great historical revolutions, the imagination was for a short period released and free to enter into the projects of a new social morality and the new institutions of freedom. Then it was sacrificed to the requirements of effective reason. So effective reason is out in his new sensibility. Then we're going to have a new sensibility. We're going to have a I guess, hippie commune communism, and the way we're going to get there to this liberated socialism is by, uh, the way we're going to get there is by by sacrificing reason. This is exactly the same move that we saw in the French Revolution, and it's exactly some of the same kind of thing we saw the Soviets make the mistake with doing that, you know, they're going to have their new Soviet science and their, everything else was bourgeois science or Western science and had to go. So anyway, let us continue though. If now, in the rebellion of the young intelligentsia, so let me pause on this word intelligentsia. So obviously the intelligentsia means people who are generally considered to be the intellectual class, who are speaking as professors, as students and grad students, etc., who are trying to participate in intellectual life. But there's a more specific meaning that was used within, um, at least Lenin used during the Bolshevik Revolution, which was people who roughly bought the dogma, people who were intelligent enough to buy into the communist and Bolshevik uh, movement and the dogma, or at least not to um, be too against it. So the very smart people, as I call them, would be considered part of the intelligentsia, even if they're like, nominally against communism or wokeness or neo-Marxism or whatever it happens to be, or Bolshevism. 
but they they run enough defense and apology for it. So the intelligentsia means something like that. It means people who believe the doctrine or who at least operate to carry intellectual water for it. And I assume that the Marcuse probably is largely using uh, the young intelligentsia to mean smart, young, academic type people who agree with me, uh, just to be at a guess. He doesn't clarify, but there is a historical note to make about this word and a contextual note to make about this word. But he says, if now in the rebellion of the young intelligentsia, the right and truth of the imagination become the demands of political action, if surrealistic forms of protest and refusal spread throughout the movement, remember the postmodern thing is happening here. This is 1969 and 1968 in May. We had the postmodernists all showing up at the Sorbonne in the, the, the Paris riots of May of 1968. We had Michel Foucault in his like perfect suit, velvet suit or something, throwing rocks while carefully not getting any dirt and dust on them at the Sorbonne itself or whatever it was he was throwing rocks at. So postmodernism is actually coming onto the scene at this point. His colleague, Marcuse's colleague Theodore Adorno, is writing about the negative dialectic, which is like a very modernist postmodernism in a sense. It's got many of the same kinds of vibes as as postmodernism without going all the way into the surreal. And so surrealism and the hippie movement also is going to be very significant for what he's thinking about. So he says, if all of this is happening, the truth of the imagination, whatever the hell the truth of the imagination is supposed to be, become the demands of political action if the surrealistic forms of protest and refusal spread throughout the movement. This apparently insignificant development may indicate a fundamental change in the situation. So he's predicting correctly that if we just abandon reality and go nuts and get surrealistic and postmodern and so on, we might be able to completely do something different. If the intelligentsia kind of go wild and turn LSD on us, Something different is going to happen. The political protest, he says, assuming a total character, reaches into a dimension which, as aesthetic dimension, has been essentially apolitical. And the political protest activates in this dimension precisely the foundational organic elements, the human sensibility which rebels against the dictates of repressive reason, and in so doing, invokes the sensuous power of the imagination. Okay, so he's like, if we go all out into the imagination, into the surreal, and we infuse that into the movement, we can have a fundamental change. It can be totally different. We can have a totally different movement, he's saying. It'll be completely different. The political and the apolitical will fuse. It'll be a completely different thing. The political protest will now reach not to reason, which maintains repression, not into sensibility, which maintains repression, but into foundational organic elements. It gets away from the dictates of repressive reason and invokes the sensuous powers of the imagination. We can imagine, as Foucault might have it, new potentialities of being. Writing at roughly the same time, by the way, as this. So this is the mood of all of this leftist thinking at the time. The, po the political action, he says, which insists on a new morality and a new sensibility as preconditions and results of social change occurs at a point at which the repressive rationality that has brought about the achievements of industrial society becomes utterly regressive, rational only in its efficacy to contain liberation. So this is, this is something. So he's envisioning a society where we can break free of 
what he calls industrial society, the achievements of industrial society. We can break free of Western liberal capitalist societies into a new liberated socialist communist kind of project. And he says that what's happened now is that, that rationality is actually repressive. It brought about, rationality brought about all these achievements of industrial society, but it becomes regressive because it's now rational only in its efficiency for containing liberation, for preventing us to go into this new liberated hippie commune communism on the other side of the communist rainbow that he's envisioning as liberated socialism. Beyond the limits, he writes, and beyond the power of repressive reason now appears the prospect for a new relationship between sensibility and reason, namely the harmony between sensibility and a radical consciousness. So we're no longer going to have a relationship between sensibility and reason in his liberation. We're now going to instead have a relationship, a harmony between sensibility and radical consciousness. We're all going to become critical theorists. We're going to envision the perfected utopia that doesn't exist, and we're going to completely envision a new thing, and that's going to free up reason from being, it's actually going to free up sensibility. Reason is the problem. Reason is the thing that has to go. We need instead radical consciousness instead of reason. Reason, as we now see all over in critical race theory, becomes a tool of oppression here in Marcuse already in 1969. He writes that rational faculties capable of projecting and defining the objective material conditions of freedom, its real limits and chances, that's what the harmony between sensibility and radical consciousness looks like. Rational faculties capable of projecting and defining the objective material conditions of freedom, its real limits and chances. So we're going to have to go into a whole new way of thinking, and reason isn't going to be the way to get there. But instead of being shaped and permeated by the rationality of domination, so rationality and rationality of domination are conflated into a single thing. So rationality becomes a tool of domination, as he's kind of made the case for already, and you know, obviously badly, but that's what he believes. But instead of being shaped and permeated by the rationality of domination, the sensibility that we're going to, we're still in the new sensibility, would be guided by the imagination, mediating between the rational faculties and the sensuous needs. There's Rousseau again, right? There's the instinctual, sensuous savages who are going to live in the rational cities. Same thing that captivated Hegel in the very beginning that led him to become fascinated with the mystical content of the word Alfhaben. Alfhaben becoming the center of his dialectical process, his dialectical process being picked up by Marx to make into all of Marxism, and then picked up by the neo-Marxists. And you still see the echoes here perfectly clearly. They are unmistakable. This is what this is the same vision that produced the French, French Revolution and all of its failures, the same vision that produced all of the horrors of communism. Here it is. No, it's going to work this time. It's going to work this time. We just have to dip into the imagination. We have to get away from the rationality of domination. That's what we have to do. That's it. That's all we have to do. That's the lunacy in Marcuse's mind in this, in this paragraph. Instead of being shaped and permeated, you can almost hear like the like the kind of mentally ill enthusiasm. Instead of being shaped and permeated by the rationality of domination, the sensibility, the new sensibility would be guided by the imagination, mediating between the rational faculties and the sensuous needs. Don't you see? It'll work this time. So he goes on, the great conception which, which animates Kant's critical philosophy shatters the philosophical framework in which he kept it. So Kant is an interesting question here. You know, um, my friend Stephen Hicks 
and a lot of other people lay a lot of the blame for the counter-Enlightenment movement on Kant, but Kant is also simultaneously, obviously, an Enlightenment figure. He is also the father, in some sense, with critique of pure reason, etc., and his other critiques of the so-called critical philosophy, and the critical philosophy became core to what later was Marx's critical philosophy, even Hegel's critical philosophy, his dialectical or negative philosophy that he had, um, where the uh, Kant's um, dialectic, which was thesis meets antithesis to find synthesis, gets transformed for Hegel into the abstract meets its negative, and from that we derive the concrete. And so we have this recentering of negative thinking in critique for Hegel that Marx realizes is the tool, and he picks it up and creates a critical philosophy that becomes the critical theory that Marcuse is operating within. Uh, but he, Kant is a complicated character because he's both Enlightenment and anti-Enlightenment, or counter-Enlightenment in certain ways at the same time. His critique was used, certainly, by the biggest counter-Enlightenment figures, Hegel, Marx, etc., on down the line, Marcuse, and so on. But Kant kind of has a foot in both worlds with his critical philosophy that he's developing as an idealist. Again, as kind of the problem is German idealism is not that great anyway. But here we have Marcuse saying, you know, we have this great conception that animates Kant's critical philosophy, but it's too weak. And so here we have it shattering the framework in which he kept it. It went Hegelian. That's why Marx said that Hegel figured out how to use the dialectic for the first time. That's what set Hegel apart from Kant is that Hegel figured out how to apply the dialectic to the world to shatter the framework in which he kept it, which was philosophy. The dialectical process, even of Kant, makes a lot of sense in philosophy. It makes less sense applied to the world, and that's the difference between Kant and Hegel, and that's the huge argument between Stephen Hicks's interpretation of Kant being the father of the counter-enlightenment and Hegel. I think that Rousseau, and I think Stephen would agree with me on this, uh, has much, much, much to uh, bear in terms of blame for this. The French Enlightenment was not the same as the British and Scottish Enlightenment. It was certainly not the same as the German Enlightenment or idealistic Enlightenment or whatever we want to call this. And Hegel picked up in love with the ideas of Rousseau um, with Schilling or whoever it was, Schelling in between. It's one of these S names. I'll remember it sooner or later. Or I'll look it up again soon. So the great conception which animates Kant's critical philosophy shatters the philosophical framework in which he kept it. The imagination unifying sensibility and reason becomes productive as it becomes practical. A guiding force in the reconstruction of reality. Reconstruction with the help of a Gaia Scientia, a science and technology released from their service to destruction and exploitation and thus free for the liberating exigencies of the imagination. This is a very insane thing, but we're now we're going to free up science and technology so that they're no longer used for destruction and exploitation as they are in industrial and, and war societies. We're now going to free them up into a complete reconstruction of reality through a gay science. That's the Nietzschean idea. One that's for the pleasure and happiness of human beings. He says the rational transformation of the world could then lead to a reality formed by the aesthetic sensibility of man. Such a world could, in the literal sense, with an exclamation mark in parentheses, in a literal sense, embody, incorporate the human faculties and desires to such an extent that they appear as part of the objective determinism of nature. Coincidence of causality through nature 
and causality through freedom. André Breton has made this idea the center of surrealist thought. His concept of hazard objectif designates the nodal point at which the two chains of causation meet and bring about the event. So he really wants to complete break from reality and reason as a tool to, to, to investigate and shape our interactions with reality, and he wants to replace it with imagination. Again, this is the same error that we saw, and it's the same dialectical process that we saw in Rousseau. So, you know, I give these guys a lot of shit for being Hegelian, but Hege the, the Rousseau piece is not able to be ignored here. If you don't understand that this is so deeply rooted both in Rousseau and in Hegel's appreciation and love for some of what Rousseau is doing, then you can't really understand what these guys are looking for. And that's the mystical dream world that Rousseau was talking about that launched romanticism that later collapsed because that was a stupid idea and became existentialism. And that's the misery that set the seeds when combined with these ideas and their failure for postmodernism. And you can start to see how these threads are starting to come together to create what became woke later as they weave, the left keeps taking all of its bad ideas and weaving them together again, stitching them together into an increasingly grotesque Frankenstein monster of failed ideas. Well, Rousseau's uh, vision of this kind of perfected world with, you know, where we're, we're elevating, where reason has failed and we're elevating emotion and, and, uh, you know, our instinctual nature, and that's what's caused everything to fail. And then we're going to have this very kind of emotive, romantic world that sounds very fun and exciting. If we could just get to that, it would be perfect. That's where you end up with a disaster of the French Revolution. Romanticism is all dramatic and all of this. And the next thing you know, everybody's in France sad. You get existentialism ruining everybody's life, and that's the context in which postmodernism arises and says, hey, look, the woke come, come along and they're like, Postmodernism nihilistic is great. Let's just weave that right back into all this crap because we're not nihilistic if we envision a perfect world that we believe we can get to that doesn't actually account for the realities of man. We just have to change the realities of man. And in fact, if we can just change the realities of reality, and that's what we're looking for liberation from, and that's what liberationism is about here. And it latches on to real things like that colonialism is crap and bad in many ways, not in all ways, and injures people and harms in many ways, but not in all ways, and is brutal and exploitative and often engages in things like slavery and sometimes genocide, and that's horrific. And there are lots of evil things associated and easily associated with colonialism, and then the people who are colonized might want liberation from those abuses. So it latches on to real things, but the liberation fronts were all communist fronts. So they want liberation from more than that. They want liberation from capitalism. They want liberation from so-called capitalist exploitation. They want liberation from reality. And that's what Marcuse's essay is about. The aesthetic university writes is the Lebensfeld on which the needs and faculties of freedom depend for their liberation. They cannot develop in an environment shaped by and for aggressive impulses, nor can they be envisaged as the mere effect of the new set of social institutions. They can only emerge, sorry, they can emerge only in the collective practice of creating an environment, level by level, step by step, in the material and intellectual production, an environment in which the non-aggressive, erotic, receptive faculties of man in harmony with the consciousness of freedom strive for the pacification of man and nature. This is his vision for the reconstruction of society, okay? 
We have to get rid of all of our aggressive impulses. They can't just come out of a new set of social institutions. We're seeing that now. The attempt is all taken over the institutions, and it's all miserable, and it sucks. He's not wrong about that part. They can only emerge, he says, in the collective practice of creating an environment level by level, step by step, in the material and intellectual production. So we're going to change how we think about everything. This is where getting into the intellectual production, this is where taking over the universities became very relevant. And we're going to take them over and create an environment in which the non-aggressive, erotic, again, he wants to have orgies, receptive faculties of man in harmony with the consciousness of freedom, strive for what? This is how we get to liberation. We have to strive for the pacification of man and nature. We have to nerf the world and all humans, and then we're going to be ready for liberation. That's when this new sensibility can open up. That's the only way that we can get to liberation from reality. We have to pacify man and nature first. In the reconstruction of society, he says, for the attainment of this goal, reality altogether would assume a capital F neoplatonic form, he just says capital F form, expressive of the new goal. Reality altogether would assume a form expressive of the new goal. The essentially aesthetic quality of this capital F form would make it a work of art but inasmuch as the capital F form is to emerge in the social processes of production, art would have changed its traditional locus and function in society. It would have become a productive force in the material as well as the cultural transformation. And as such a force, art would be an integral factor in shaping the quality and appearance of things, in shaping the reality, the way of life. Okay, so what we're looking at here is we're going to completely reconstitute reality. We have to completely change reality. Or in other words, we have to completely change how we perceive reality because reality isn't going to bend. He might think we can reconstitute reality, but the only thing we can do is completely adopt a lens on reality that changes entirely. That's going to be achieved, he says, through art. And art is now going to change its entire purpose. It's now going to be productive in the material and cultural transformation. In other words, it's going to become propaganda. And as, such a and as such force, art would be an integral factor, he says, in shaping the quality and the appearance of things, the lens, in shaping reality. The appearance of things, reality, the way of life. Appearance, reality. He's telling us that we're going to misperceive. It's, it's all about misperceiving reality and trying to force that to work. Reality is going to bat last, though. It's going to kill us, just like it kills us every time we try this stuff. He doesn't get it. But of course, he thinks that we can reconstitute reality into a new platonic form. If we just create the form so Hegelian, just create the perfected idea of society, then the society will manifest that way. But if we go back to Hegel, how does it happen? Well, the state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. That's a direct quote from Hegel. The state is the divine idea as it's expressed on earth. So we just have to get the idea right and then empower the state to enforce the idea. Then we'll get there. And that's why these are horrific statist ideologies that turn into totalitarian nightmares that kill everybody. What does Marcuse say about it? Well, this would mean, he says, the Aufhebung of art. We have to do the dialectical process to art. We have to abolish, keep, and lift up and sublate art. End of the segregation of the aesthetic from the real. 
but also end of the commercial unification of business and beauty, exploitation, and pleasure. Art would recapture some of its more primitive technical connotations as the art of preparing, cooking, cultivating, growing things, giving them a form which neither violates their matter nor the sensitivity. Ascent of capital F form as one of the necessities of being, universal beyond all subjective varieties of taste, affinity, etc. And people argue with me that this isn't Gnostic. I keep telling you guys, critical theory, the whole religion of critical theory, doesn't matter if it's critical race theory or whichever one, is a Gnostic hermetic religion. It is hermetic in at least two regards, one of which is that it, be, it believes that, re, that, that the divine comes to understand itself through an other that it is in dialectical relationship with until it finally realizes itself. So God becomes God by realizing itself through that which it creates, which is not God, until it finally realizes through the complete abol abolition of all contradictions that that which it created is, is in fact itself, just a manifestation of itself, at which point the the, the, the absolute realizes itself and the utopia arrives because the ideas are perfect. The absolute is now complete and everything is the absolute. And because it is the absolute, it is perfect. It is no longer subject nor objective, subjective nor objective. It is now perfectly unified through dialectical Aufhebung. Okay. So it's hermetic in that regard it's also that's a definition of hermetic by the way is that the god comes to know himself through a created other that's separate from himself it's also this dialectical process is a, is a form of alchemy i talked about this in the long podcast i did about hegel it's a form of alchemy that we're going to transform society to a perfected state the seed of the perfected society is going to grow out of it and as we know with these guys the the alphibung process is a process of negative thinking we're going to apply the negation we're going to take the abstract and hit it with its negative, and that's going to somehow keep but lift up and abolish all at the same time. And somehow by keeping and abolishing and lifting up, we're going to reach a higher level of understanding that's better and more perfected idea. That's alchemy. That's hermeticism. Yet it's Gnostic. How is it Gnostic? They know what it's supposed to look like. They know art is going to recapture some of its more primitive technical connotations. The art of preparing, cooking, cultivating, growing things, giving them a form which neither violates their matter nor the sensitivity. Ascent of the inheritors of Neoplatonism, form, capital F form, as one of the necessities of being universal beyond all subjective varieties of taste, affinity, etc., which they alone know because they have special knowledge, because they see what no one else can see because they have raised a critical consciousness, a radical revolutionary consciousness, but that critical consciousness is at the very center of it is a Gnosticism. It is knowing with direct knowledge what the absolute is about, what the right side of history looks like. It is a Gnostic hermetic religion. And it is needs to be, I should say, understood as a religion. And it's very clear here that that's what he's talking about because if it's a religion, it has no place in our public life. And that's exactly the error that we've been allowing for probably close to 100 years, but certainly for over 50 years, and it's about to destroy our Western civilizations because secularism should apply to this, and it doesn't. Going further, he writes, according to Kant, there are pure forms of sensibility a priori common to all human beings. Only space and time? Or is there perhaps also a more material constitutive form, such as the primary distinction between beautiful and ugly, good and bad? 
prior to all rationalization and ideology. It is an absolute knowledge. This is Gnosticism, people. A, oh God, it's so it's so Gnostic. A <laughs> where did it go? A more material is there perhaps also a more material constituted form which will be known through critical theory through critical consciousness, such as the primary distinction between beautiful and ugly, good and bad, prior to all rationalization and ideology, a distinction made by the senses productive in their receptivity, distinguishing that which violates sensibility from that which gratifies it, in which case the vast varieties of taste, affinity, predilection would be the differentiation of an original basic form of sensibility sense experience on which modeling restraining and repressive forces would operate in accord with the respective individual and social situation so what he's saying is that there is a perfect form there's a perfect understanding an absolute knowledge of ugly good bad that precedes all ideology all rationalization all sensibility grafted onto the world that's precedes and is beyond all varieties of taste, affinity, and predilection. It's beyond all differentiation. It is an original basic form of sensibility, sense experience. And then that absolute knowledge, which critical theory is supposed to give you access to as a critical consciousness that he believes he has access to, that's Gnostic knowledge. That's Gnosticism. And he says that what's causing the problem is modeling, restraining, and repressive forces that operate on that to create the respective individual and social situations. This is a Gnostic Hermetic religion, and it's absolutely clear in this paragraph. The new sensibility and the new consciousness, that's Gnosticism, which are to project and guide such reconstruction, that's Hermeticism. Demand a new language to define and communicate the new values. Language in the wider sense, which includes words, images, gestures, tones. So he's now calling for the creation of a new language. The abuse of language to have an abuse of power. This is the whole project that they have. They're going to create a linguistic pseudo-reality to usher in a new sensibility, a new consciousness that is untethered from reality and that is based in a critical theory-rooted or critical Marxian-rooted or idealistic Hegelian-rooted Gnosticism to do a social, cultural, and political alchemy to remake the world according to their vision, which is going to be constituted in a new language, which is exactly what they do. They use our vocabulary, but they don't use our dictionary. They have a new language. He says, it has been said that the degree to which a revolution is developing qualitatively different social... I must, did I miss a word? It, is, it has been said that the degree to which a revolution is developing qualitatively different social conditions and relationships may perhaps be indicated by the development of a different language. The rupture with the continuum of domination must also be a rupture with the vocabulary of domination. The surrealist thesis according to which the poet is the total nonconformist finds in the poetic language the semantic elements of the revolution. And then he quotes in French, which I believe I have here, uh, 
according to Google Translate, because the poet can no longer be recognized as such if he is not opposed by a total nonconformism to the world in which he lives. It stands up against all, including the revolutionaries who, placing themselves on the ground of the only policy arbitrarily isolated by their from the ensemble of the cultural movement, advocate the submission of culture to the accomplishment of the social revolution. Now, I'm sure that didn't translate perfectly, but what we do have here is this idea that the culture has to submit to the revolution, and that is the only way in which uh, the poet, he says, can be recognized as such, because he has to non be nonconformist. And so that's the spirit in which Marcuse's idea of a revolution is going to come about through this language. The Surrealist thesis, he writes, does not abandon the materialistic premises, but it protests against the isolation of the material form of the material from the cultural development, which leads to a submission of the latter to the former, and thus to a reduction, if not denial, of the libertarian possibilities of the revolution. So the Surrealist thesis, does, this is a complicated sentence, does not abandon the materialistic premises, but it protests, he says, against the isolation of the material from the cultural. And that leads, he says, in turn, to a submission of the cultural to the material, and thus to a reduction, if not denial, of all libertarian possibilities of the revolution. So the, the revolution is now going to be constrained. It's not going to have total liberatory potential is going to be constrained by, well, material and cultural uh, demands. But in fact, he says that the culture is being, uh, is having to submit to material. And so the, again, we're, we're going to rail against reality to get a proper libertarian or freedom revolution that he's talking about. So he says, prior to their incorporation into the material development, these possibilities are surrealistic. They belong to the poetic imagination formed and expressed in the poetic language. It is not, it cannot be an instrumentalist language, not an instrument of revolution. So it seems that the, so the poems and the songs of protest and liberation are always too late or too early, memory or dream. Their time is not the present. They preserve their truth and their hope and their refusal of the actual. The distance between the universe, universe of poetry and that of politics is so great. The, medita uh, the mediations which, via which validate the poetic truth and the rationality of imagination are so complex that any shortcut between the two realities seems fatal to poetry. There is no way in which we can envisage a historical change in the relation between the cultural and the revolutionary movement which could bridge the gap between the everyday and the poetic language and abrogate the dominance of the former. The latter seems to draw all its power and all its truth from its otherness, its transcendence. So he's going on about the idea that he was talking about earlier, that, that the poetic and the instrumental have to be made into one thing. We have to combine basically the artistic and the scientific into a single thing. This is going to be a disaster. But what does he have to say about this? And yet the radical denial of the establishment and the communication of the new consciousness depend more and more faithfully on a language of their own as all communication is monopolized and validated by the one-dimensional society. So there's a nod toward his one-dimensional man thesis, uh, which doesn't take in, the claim is basically that we have an instrumental logic that doesn't take into account critical logic or critical theory. And so there's only one dimension of thought. There's not two dimension and that flattens out life into a one dimensional experience for people in which they can be controlled by the various interests in society. And they're not truly free. 
We need a new language to break free of that, he says. That's the only way to communicate this new consciousness. We need this double language where words mean something slightly different. Because otherwise the words mean domination things, and they're going to reproduce domination. That's his argument. This is what they're trying to do. It's going to not work. It's going to be the catastrophe. Of course it will. To be sure, he writes, the language of denial has in its material always been in the same always been the same as the language of affirmation. The linguistic continuity reasserted itself after every revolution. See, so that's what I'm saying. He believes that we have revolutions, but there was linguistic continuity. We didn't come up with a new language, a new way to think, a new way to express ideas, a new way to fuse the poetic and the scientific or whatever it happens to be. We didn't come up with a new language to express the new consciousness and the, to forward the new sensibility. And since we use the old language, the domination that was there before reasserted itself after the revolution. And that's why things like the Soviet Union went to crap rather than the fact that the ideas were bad. That's why it didn't work, because the language was con was continuous. So the domination contained in the language reasserted itself after the revolution. Maybe that's what he would say is why China, which he thinks is going great when he's writing this, is going to go bad, because the language, the Chinese language, continued and reasserted itself. Perhaps necessarily so, he says, because through all revolutions, the continuity of domination has been sustained. But in the past, the language of indictment and liberation, though it has shared its vocabulary with the masters and their retainers, had found its own meaning and validation in actual revolutionary struggles, which eventually changed the established societies. The familiar, used and abused vocabulary of freedom, justice, and equality could thus obtain not only new meaning, but also new reality and the reality which emerged in the revolutions of the 17th and 18th centuries and led to the less restricted forms of freedom, justice, and equality. So here, here he's saying that words like freedom, justice, and equality were held up as ideals, revolutionary ideals, whether that's the American Revolution or the French Revolution or whichever other revolution. We're not talking about the Bolshevik because we're in 17th and 18th centuries. These ideals... Freedom, justice, and equality were held up, and of course they were slightly less restricted, but their logic remained the same because the familiar used and abused vocabulary could not uh, fully obtain its new meaning and create a new reality. That's his argument. That's his problem. So that's his claim that we need to build a new language to communicate the new reality and the new sensibility in that reality. Uh, interestingly, we see kind of the same thing in Derek Bell's analysis of uh, Brown versus Board of Education, for example, and the civil rights movement, is that the logic and, and the, the language used by, by, the, by whites essentially was able to disenfranchise blacks to take the, the, the liberatory energy of the civil rights movement and turn it back and slowly start to, so you, at the beginning you have all these great heady revolutionary advances and the next thing you know people the conservatives start backing them away, backing away from them backing them down backing them down that's really the argument that motivated the development of critical race theory if you read the critical race theory says that oh we had all these heady advances they actually say that in the 1960s in in race uh law and then oh well people started backing off of it maybe we don't need as much affirm affirmative action. Maybe affirmative action is actually discriminatory and illegal. Maybe we don't need to keep doing this. Maybe we don't need to keep doing the various different entitlement programs and so on. And that's the birthplace, the incentive structure that gave birth to critical race theory out of this exact, this is the mindset and that is the specific conditions in which it, it arose. Today, Marcuse tells us, meaning in 1969, the rupture with the linguistic universe of the establishment is more radical. In the most militant areas of protest, it amounts to a method, uh, method, uh, methodical, 
I wanted to say methodological and I couldn't get it out of my head. It amounts to a methodical reversal of meaning. There's some iron law of woke projection for you, isn't it? Today, the rupture with the, the linguistic universe of the establishment is more radical. In the most militant areas of protest, it amounts to a methodical reversal of meaning. It's not even projection. He's just confessing. He's saying we're radically reversing the meaning of words to rupture with the linguistic universe of the establishment. That's a strategy. That's exactly what we see, right? Segregation and desegregation have reversed their meanings. Racialization and deracialization have reversed their meanings. Inclusion and exclusion have reversed their meanings. Diversity and conformity have reversed their meanings. It amounts to a methodical reversal of meaning. That's the strategy here. 1969, Herbert Marcuse was writing this. It is a familiar phenomenon that subcultural groups develop their own language, taking the harmless words of everyday communication out of their context and using them for, des for designating objects or activities tabooed by the establishment. This is the hippie subculture. Trip, grass, pot, acid, and so on. I told you it's all about hippies. But a far more subversive universe of discourse announces itself in the language of black militants. Here is a systematic linguistic rebellion which smashes the ideological context in which the words are employed and defined and places them into the opposite context, negation of the established one. Alf Haben, dialectic, the dialectical process, the left moves dialectically, and he's saying that these roots in the black militants have a systematic linguistic rebellion. This is the precursor of these manipulations and critical race theory that I just mentioned. Thus, he says, the blacks take over some of the most sublime and sublimated concepts of Western civilization, desublimate them, and redefine them. For example, the soul. In its essence, lily white ever since Plato, the traditional seat of everything that is truly human in man, tender, deep, immortal, the word which has become embarrassing, corny, false in the established universe of discourse has been desublimated and in this transubstantiation migrated to the Negro culture. They are soul brothers. The soul is black, violent, orgiastic. It is no longer in Beethoven, Schubert, but in the blues, in jazz, in rock and roll, in soul food. Similarly, the militant slogan, Black is Beautiful, which, by the way, Kimberly Crenshaw invokes in her paper, Mapping the Margins, which I've read some of here on the podcast as well. Similarly, the militant slogan, Black is Beautiful, redefines another central concept of the traditional culture by reversing its symbolic value and associating it with the anti-color of darkness, tabooed magic, the uncanny. The ingression of the aesthetic into the political also appears at the other pole of the rebellion. I think he gave I think they give way too much drama to what he just talked about, by the way. It's like, I don't think it was that big of a deal. I don't think that they were actually doing it in that regard. But at any rate, the ingression of the aesthetic into the political also appears at the other pole of the rebellion against the society of affluent capitalism among the nonconformist youth. Here, too, the reversal of meaning, driven to the point of open contradiction, giving flowers to police, flower power, the redefinition and very negation of the sense of power, the erotic belligerency in the songs of protest, the sensuousness of long hair, the body unsoiled by plastic cleanliness. He's really a weird guy, man. I'm just going to leave that where it is. I'm not going to comment on that. 
These political manifestations of a new sensibility indicate the depth of the rebellion, of the rupture with the continuum of repression. They bear witness to the power of the society in shaping the whole of experience, the whole metabolism between the organism and its environment. Beyond the physiological level, the exigencies of sensibility develop as historical ones. The objects which the senses confront and apprehend are the products of a specific, a specific stage of civilization and of a specific society, and the senses in turn are geared to their objects. This is so Hegelian. This historical interrelation affects even the primary sensations. An established society imposes upon all of its members the same medium of perception, and through all the differences of individual and class perspectives, horizons, backgrounds, society provides the same general universe of experience. Consequently, the rupture with the continuum of aggression and exploitation would also break with the sensibility geared to this universe. Today's rebels, he says, want to see, hear, feel new things in a new way. They link liberation with the dissolution of ordinary and orderly perception. The trip involves the dissolution of the ego shaped by the established society, an artificial and short-lived dissolution, but the artificial and private liberation anticipates in a distorted manner an exigency of the social liberation. The revolution must be at the same time a revolution in perception, which will accompany the material and intellectual reconstruction of society, creating the new aesthetic environment. So he's literally talking about LSD here, which is kind of interesting since he worked for the OSS, which is a precursor to the CIA, which basically broke up the radicals that he's actually writing to uh, by probably feeding him acid to get him to basically just be hippie weirdos instead of being radical militants. But at any rate, now he's waxing lyrical and poetic about it. I don't know if he did acid at this point, and he's like, oh man, you know, this is what we need. We need to just break from reality completely. Liberation, acid is the way. I don't know if he's like propagandizing to the people that he's about to, you know, maybe he's still got his CIA buddies that are going to just drug him up. I have no idea. But it's clearly talking about that an acid trip is sort of the proper metaphor for what he wants to see as this new sensibility. And remember, we're going to build a new language to make sure that everybody understands this new sensibility and pushes forward for it. Awareness, he writes, of the need for such a revolution in perception, because this is the pun here, right? Like there's a revolution in perception that you can imagine by taking acid, but then there's we're going to perceive the whole world differently, man. We're going to see it all differently. We're going to see the power structures, man. We're going to see everything in terms of power, man. That's what he's talking about, a revolution in perception. We're going to all become critically conscious, man. We're all going to become Gnostics in this new religion, man. Awareness of the need for such a revolution in perception, for a new sensorium, is perhaps the kernel of truth in the psychedelic search. But it is vitiated when its narcotic character brings temporary release not only from the reason and rationality of the established system, but also from that other rationality, which is to change the established system. When sensibility is freed not only from the exigencies of existing order of the existing order, but also from those of liberation. And see, so there he's like, wait a minute, they're going to drug you right out of this project here. Don't go too far. Intentionally non-committed, the withdrawal creates as artificial paradises within the society from which it withdrew. They thus remain subject to the law of this society, which punishes the inefficient performances, as it should. 
In contrast, the radical transformation of society implies the union of the new sensibility with a new rationality. Okay, so we've sacrificed reason and now we're going to build a new one. We're going to use a new language to do it. And we're going to do that by radically, the radical transformation of society says implies the union of the new sensibility with a new rationality. We're not all going to be on a drug trip all the time. The imagination is going to be shackled to this new critically conscious, like you said earlier, right? We're going to replace the the, the, the combination of sensibility with reason or rationality to the, the union of sensibility and radical consciousness or critical consciousness. So now he says the same thing. We're going to have this union of the new sensibility with a new rationality, which is going to be a radical critical consciousness. In other words, induction into the Gnostic cult. The imagination becomes productive if it becomes the mediator between sensibility on the one hand and theoretical as well as practical reason on the other. And in this harmony of faculties in which Kant saw the token of freedom guides the reconstruction of society. Such a union has been the distinguishing feature of art, but its realization has been stopped at the point at which it would have become incompatible with the basic institutions and social relationships. So it's Art, man, art sets you free, but they, they limit art. They limit it to what's going to keep us in the system. It's been, it's been stopped at the point at which it would have become incompatible with the basic institutions and social relationships. The material culture, the reality, continued to lag behind the progress of reason and imagination and to condemn much of these faculties to irreality, fantasy, and fiction. Art could not become a technique in reconstructing reality. The sensibility remained repressed, and the experience mutilated. So art wasn't able to do its transform transformative faculty. It couldn't change the society. It couldn't transform us because it was being repressed. Sensibility remained repressed, I should say, because we don't have our new sensibility yet. And so the experience people had was being mutilated by the idea of sensibility, which was the old sensibility, not the new liberated sensibility that denies and is going to remake reality according to a platonic form. In other words, it's going to be uh, some kind of communist vision that's Gnostically determined as a complete and direct understanding of the absolute that they believe that they have through critical consciousness because it's a Gnostic religion that they're going to achieve through hermetic alchemical means. Anyway, they affect, he says, the affirmative character of art by virtue of which art has the power of reconciliation with the status quo, and the degree of sublimation, which militated against the realization of the truth of the cognitive force of art. The protest against these features of art spreads through the entire universe of art prior to the First World War and continues with increased intensity. It gives voice and image to the negative power of art and to the tendencies toward a desublimation of culture. The emergence of a contemporary art, I shall use art, throughout, as including the visual arts as well as literature and music, means more than the traditional replacement of one style by another. Non-objective, abstract painting and sculpture, stream of consciousness and formalist literature, 12-tone composition, blues and jazz. These are not merely new modes of perception reorienting and intensifying the old ones. They rather dissolve the very structure of perception in order to make room. For what? The new object of art is not yet given, but the familiar object has become impossible, false. From illusion, imitation, harmony to reality, but the reality is not yet given. It is not the one which the object of, 
It is not the one which is the object of realism. So he's wanting to break away again from realism here in art. So now we're going to go into postmodern type art. We're going to go into surrealism. We're going to go into you know jazz, etc. We're going to break away from this previous modernistic, realistic view of the world that's being transmitted by art. We're going to go into the weird, to the, the trippy, the 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 nonconformist, etc. That's what's got to happen. We don't know. He says it's not yet given what the new object is, but it's not going to be realism. It's not going to be real. It's going to be hyper real if we were going to skip forward to de- a decade and a half to Baudrillard. It's not going to be real. It's going to have to be hyper real to skip forward to Baudrillard writing in the 1980s. Reality, he says, has to be discovered and projected. The senses must learn not to see things anymore in the medium of that law and order which has formed them. The bad functionalism which organizes our sensibility must be smashed. We've got to get out of reality, guys. Then we'll be liberated. From the beginning, he says, the new art insists on its radical autonomy and tension or conflict with the development of the Bolshevik Revolution and the revolutionary movements activated by it. The new art insists on its radical autonomy and tension or conflict with the development of the Bolshevik Revolution and the revolutionary movements activated by it. Art remains alien to the revolutionary praxis by virtue of the artist's commitment to capital F form. Capital F form is art's own reality. As de Sachi said, I can't do German, the Russian formalist, uh, B. Eichenbaum uh, insists, and we have this uh, Russian formalist writing, it appears in French, uh, the notion of form has acquired a new meaning. This is, again, a Google Translate. It is no longer an envelope, but a dynamic and concrete integrity, which has a content in itself beyond any correlation. Form I'm assuming this is capital F form, but it's the beginning of a sentence, is the achievement of the artistic perception which breaks the unconscious and false automatism, the unquestioned familiarity which operates in every practice, including the revolutionary practice, an automatism of immediate experience, but a socially socially engineered experience which militates against the liberation of sensibility. we got to liberate sensibility, and we have this automatism. Uh, so it's kind of a false consciousness with the, the automatism of, of immediate experience, but a socially engineered experience. Our experience is, is immediate, but it's fake. It's engineered. And that engineered experience militates. It prevents us from developing a new sensibility, a liberation of sensibility. We to liberate sensibility to a new one. The artistic perception, he's basically saying that art is being limited and not allowed to free people's minds all the way to his communistic vision. The artistic perception is supposed to shatter this immediacy, which in truth is a historical product, the medium of experience imposed by the established society, but coagulating into a self-sufficient, closed, automatic system. And again, we have, quoting in the French, he writes, So life disappears, turning into nothing. Automation swallows objects, clothes, furniture, women, and the fear of war. If this deadly system of life is to be changed without being replaced by another deadly one, men must learn to develop the new sensibility of life of their own life. So uh, men must learn to develop the new sensibility of life of their own life and that of things. 
And so we again get some French. And now, in order to convey the sensation of life, to feel objects, to experience that stone is stone, there exists what is called art. The aim of art is to give a sensation of the object as vision and not as recognition. The process of art is the process of singularization of objects, and the process which consists in obscuring the form and increasing the difficulty and the duration of perception. The act of perception in art is an end in itself and must be extended. Art is a means of experiencing the becoming of the object. What has already become does not matter for art. So the becoming, here we have Hegel and his relevance popping up again. Hegel believed that the uh, dialectical synthesis of being and nothing is becoming. We can only understand uh, and that's why his deity is a becoming deity rather than a being deity. It is one that becomes through the dialectical process. That is, in other words, it is a hermetic deity. It is hermetic in its orientation, becoming what it becomes. That which is became from nothing. So becoming is the synthesis. So when we have this reference of, of becoming here, that's what he's talking about. And this uh, is what he says. If this deadly system of life is to be changed without being replaced by another deadly one, men must learn to develop this new sensibility of their of life and of their own life and that of things. And that's what he's talking about. We've got to get into the dialectical frame. We've got to become critical. He says, I have referred to the formalist because it seems characteristic that the transformative element in art is emphasized by a school which insists on the artistic perception as end in itself on the form as content. Those are both capitalized. It is precisely the form by virtue which art transcends the given reality, works in the established reality against the established reality. And this transcendent element is inherent in art, in the artistic dimension. Art alters experience by reconstructing the objects of experience, reconstructing them in word, tone, image. Why? Evidently, the language of art must communicate a truth. An objectivity which is not accessible to ordinary language and ordinary experience. This exigency explodes in the situation of contemporary art. The radical character, the violence of this reconstruction in contemporary art seems to indicate that it does not rebel against one style or another, but against style itself. Again, we're getting into postmodernism here. Against the art form of art, against the traditional meaning of art. So you can see him tipping into to the postmodern line of thought. He's opening up to that, the radical character. To get truly radical, we have to get out of form itself. We have to get away from the art form of art. We now have to be completely open ended. This great, sorry, the great artistic rebellion in the period of the First World War gives a signal. And now we translate from the German. We oppose great centuries with a no. We go to the mocking amazement of those around us, a side path that hardly seems to be a path, and say, this is the main road of human development. The fight is against the... This is in German, so let me get this. Uh, I don't have that one translated. Never mind. The fight is against the illusionist... I'm sorry. Illusionistish... Kunst Europas. Uh, so I don't know what that means. Something about Europe's or Europeans and illusion. Uh, the illusionists of the uh, 
of your Europeans or something like that. Art must no longer be illusory because its relation to reality has changed. The latter has become susceptible to, even dependent on, the transforming function of art. The revolutions and the defeated and betrayed revolutions which occurred in the wake of the war denounced a reality which had made art an illusion. And inasmuch as art had been an illusion, the new art proclaims itself as anti-art. Moreover, the illusory art incorporated the established ideas of possession naively into its forms of representation. It did not question the object character of the world as subject to man. Art must break with this reification. It must become a great deal of German. Uh, painted or modeled critique of knowledge is what it means. It must become painted or modeled critique of knowledge based on a new optic replacing the Newtonian optic. And this art would correspond to a, quote, type of man who is not like us. So again, we're talking, <laughs> we're going to make a new man. We're going to have a new biological foundation for socialism. And it's going to be interjected through morality to create a new sensibility. And then we're going to create a new man that's not like us. And this new optic replacing the Newtonian optic sounds like a very weird thing to have just tucked in here, but that's a very Hegelian idea. Hegel hated Newton, and he particularly thought Newton's ideas of optics, which turned out, by the way, to be absolutely correct, he thought that they were stupid. He thought that they were absolutely ridiculous. How in the world, Hegel was talking about, could light have all these colors? And Newton can't even say how many colors it has. It's a, because it's a spectrum, as it turns out. He's, he can't say if it's five colors. He can't say if it's seven. He just says that white light somehow has all these colors in it, and that's ridiculous. And so Hegel railed on Newton. He hated Newton. He hated the way that Newton had this very orderly, Verstand level of understanding of the world that was not in alignment with his weirdo magic trick magic spell sorcery of Vernunft that was his higher order reason that he believed was the true science. Hegel was a sorcerer and an ideologue of the first rate, and Hegel's work opens the door to tremendous ideologues to take this up, and the, his rejection of Newton being reflected here in Marcuse is no mistake. Um, that's what we're, we're dealing with, the rejection of objective truth, because objective truth isn't compatible with the magic, the alchemical hermetic magic, or compatible with the Gnostic vision of the perfected world that it's supposed to work to under a critical philosophy. So what does Marcuse say about all this? Since then, the eruption of anti-art in art has manifested itself in many familiar forms. Destruction of syntax, fragmentation of words and sentences, explosive use of ordinary language, compositions without score, sonatas for anything. And yet this entire deformation is capital F, form. Anti-art has remained art, supplied, purchased, and contemplated as art. So now you have postmodern art, which is an anti-art. It breaks away from the idea of being art at all but it has remained art somehow. The wild revolt of art, postmodern art, has remained a short-lived shock, quality absorbed, quite quickly absorbed in the art gallery, within the four walls, in the concert hall, by the market, and adorning the plazas and lobbies of the, of the prospering business establishments. Transforming the intent of art is a self Transforming the intent of art is self-defeating, a self-defeat built into the very structure of art. No matter how affirmative, quote, realistic the oeuvre may be, the artist has given it a form which is not part of the reality he presents in which he, and in which he works. The oeuvre is unreal precisely inasmuch as it is art. 
The novel is not a newspaper story, the still life not alive, and even in pop art the real tin can is not in the supermarket. The very capital F form of art contradicts the effort to do away with the segregation of art to a second reality, to translate the truth of the productive imagination into the first reality. So this second reality is actually the thing, if you read, for example, Eric Vogelin, that he says that these um, Gnostic masterminds are trying to create with their abuse of language and their twisted ideas and, and all of this. And so the second reality that he's got in quotes here is actually not a small concept. And Vogelin would have written this around the same time or earlier, uh, so uh, Marcuse may well have been aware of him. And so this was something that he was laying at the feet of Hegel. He was blaming Hegel and all of the other Gnostics that perceived him. But they tried to use language, particularly manipulations of language, to create a second reality, which later um, Joseph Piper called a pseudo-reality, which is the term that I've relied on as pseudo-reality for this. The very form of art contradicts the effort to do away, do away with the segregation of art to a second reality, to translate the truth of the productive imagination into the first reality. The form of art. We must once again glance at the philosophical tradition, which has focused the analysis of art on the concept of the beautiful, in spite of the fact that so much of art is obviously not beautiful. The beautiful has been interpreted as ethical and cognitive value. The Kalo Kagathan, the beautiful, sensuous appearance of the idea, the way of truth, passes through the realm of the beautiful. What is meant by these metaphors? The root of the aesthetic is in sensibility. So he's going to go back to sensibility, and basically this entire section is a critique of the old sensibility, which he says is repressive, versus the new sensibility, which will be liberatory. It's going to bring us to a hippie commune, uh, liberated uh, socialism that doesn't have any bureaucracies. So uh, the root of aesthetic is insensibility. The way that we, what we find sensible and insensible, what is beautiful is first sensuous. It appeals to the senses. It is pleasurable, object of ob of unsublimated drives. However, the beautiful seems to occupy a position halfway between the sublimated and unsublimated, unsublimated objectives. Beauty is not an essential organic feature of the immediate sex object. It might even deter the unsublimated drive. While at the other extreme, a mathematical theorem can be called beautiful only if highly abstract in, the, in a highly abstract figurative sense, it seems that the various connotations of beauty converge in the idea of capital F form. And so he's trying to get to the bottom of beauty. I still go to the Greeks and say that it's excellence and what it's trying to be. I understand mathematical theorem as being excellent when it is uh, actually, or beautiful when it is actually being excellent in expressing some idea concisely without extra parts and is written in a proof that has a certain degree of elegance to it because it's excellent in what it's trying to do. It's excellent in, in a minimum, in a great economy of, 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 say, language or symbology or thought or logic, expressing that this statement, this theorem, must be unequivocally true in the axiomatic system in which it has been stated. So I can see beauty in a mathematical theorem without having a highly abstract figurative sense. It is excellent in what it is attempting to do. That is a very straightforward sense. It's not... And when, when you understand it, you see it and you, you feel it. You can... Feel the beauty of the classic proof of the infinitude of primes when you look at it. You can feel it uh, once you understand what you're looking at and how clever and how economical and how, how 
just profoundly insightful that it happens to be in terms of how it gets you to think about the idea and the logic. So he seems confused about beauty. In the aesthetic capital F form, he says, the content matter is assembled, defined, and arranged to obtain a condition in which the immediate unmastered forces of the matter, of the material, are mastered, ordered. Form is the negation, the mastery of disorder, violence, suffering, even when it presents disorder, violence, suffering. Form is the negation. So he says, even when you have terrible things like disorder, violence, and suffering, form is their negation, the mastery over disorder, violence, and suffering. So order <laughs> order is the mastery of disorder, and we like that. Derp. This triumph of art is achieved by subjecting the content to the aesthetic order, which is autonomous in its exigencies. The work of art sets its own limits and ends. It is singabend. What does that mean in German? I translated that one. Meaningful. It is meaningful in relating the elements to each other according to its own law, the form of the tragedy, novel, sonata, picture. Yeah, well, exactly. You are right now. Now you're getting... It's meaningful in that it's excellent in what it's trying to be. Yes, that's how we understand beauty. That's what we can we understand beauty to be as human beings as opposed to as liberated weirdos. The content, he says, is thereby transformed. It obtains a meaning sense which transcends the elements of the content. And this transcending order is the appearance of the beautiful as the truth of art. The way in which the tragedy narrates the fate of Oedipus in the city, in which it orders the sequence of events, gives word to the unsaid and to the unspeakable, capital F form of the tragedy terminates the horror with the end of the play. It brings the destruction to a standstill. It makes the blind seeing, the intolerable, tolerable, and understandable. It subordinates the wrong, the contingent, the evil, to poetic justice. The phrase is indicative of the internal ambivalence of art to indict that which is and to cancel the indictment in the aesthetic form, redeeming the suffering, the crime. This redeeming, reconciling power seems inherent in art by virtue of its being art, by virtue of it, of its form-giving power. And this is interesting here, um, just to kind of go off to the side. This is why I've always said that Black Mirror is a postmodern show. I've actually got in a gigantic fight with somebody about this one time. And it's because the Black Mirror very rarely resolves the plot in a satisfactory way. You don't get that emotional re uh, release that you normally get watching it. It leaves you in this, like, open-ended, uncomfortable, dissatisfied lurch. And what he's saying is that even the tragedy becomes, when most of the Black Mirror episodes are tragedies, mo even the tragedy becomes art by giving you this sense of resolution and this understanding, this order being uh, placed over disorder or tragedy or violence or whatever it happens to be. And I'm claiming that Black Mirror fails to do this, right? And so therefore it's anti-art as he defined it, but which maintains as art, which is to say it's postmodern art. Um, when he has cancel here, I do have to wonder if cancel is, is Aufheben in his mind in German. Um, but any, at any rate, uh, he's saying the redeeming, reconciling power seems inherent in art by virtue of it being art, by virtue of its form-giving power. And I think that that, uh, it's something that is very important to actually understand. Um, I get the impression that he's actually going to rebel against this for his new sensibility, because he's, what he's going to say is that the sensibility has to change in order to 
understand things this way. Uh, the redeeming, reconciling power of art, he says, adheres even to the most radical manifestations of non-illusory art and anti-art. They are still oeuvres, paintings, sculptures, compositions, poems, and as such they have their own form and with it their own order, their own frame, though it may be invisible, their own space, their own beginning, and their own end. So you can see how a Black Mirror episode can be excellent, even though it's nasty and postmodern anti-art. Uh, you can see how it can be excellent in that it's achieving that response very well, that it's executing the thing that it's trying to execute excellently. The aesthetic necessity of art supersedes the terrible necessity of reality, sublimates its pain and pleasure. The blind suffering and cruelty of nature and the nature of man assume meaning and end, poetic justice. The horror of the crucifixion is purified by the beautiful face of Jesus dominating the beautiful composition. The horror of politics by the beautiful verse of Racine. The horror of farewell forever laid no, forever by the uh, lead von der Erde. And in the aesthetic universe, joy and fulfillment find their proper place alongside pain and death. Everything is in order again. Order over chaos is beauty. What a concept to be a, kind of upset about. The indictment is canceled and even defiance, insult, and derision. The extreme artistic negation of art succumb to this order. So even Black Mirror can be art. With this restoration of order, the capital F form indeed achieves a catharsis. The terror and the pleasure of reality are purified, but the achievement is illusory, false, fictitious. It remains within the dimension of art, a work of art. In reality, fear and frustration go on unabated, as they do after the brief catharsis in the psyche. This is perhaps the most telling expression of the contradiction, the self-defeat built into art. The pacifying conquest of matter, the transfiguration of the object remain unreal, just as the revolution in perception remains unreal. So now you see where he's going with this? See where he's going with this? Art is supposed to be transforming our perception. It's supposed to be changing that, but it remains unreal in art that we see as art because art is constrained by our sensibility. And therefore, the, the art is not capable. This is what his thesis was. Art is not capable of causing the revolution in perception. Revolutionary art, he said, is always too early or too late. Dream or memory. It misses its opportune moment, and therefore it can't do that, because it can't create the revolution in perception. It all remains unreal. Art is its own undoing, because art becomes art by being ordered. This is his very complicated aesthetic argument. And this vicarious character of art, he says, has time and again given rise to the question as to the justification of art. Was the Parthenon worth the sufferings of a single slave? Is it possible to write poetry after Auschwitz? The question has been countered. When the horror of reality tends to become total and blocks political action, where else than in the radical imagination? As refusal of reality, can the rebellion and its uncompromised goals be remembered? But today, are the images and the realization still in the domain of illusory art? We suggested the historical possibility of conditions in which the aesthetic could become a Gelschaftliche, Product craft, uh, productive craft, I didn't say that right, but we're just going to go with it, and as such could lead to the end of art through its realization. Re end of art through its realization, that's very Hegelian, right? Art is going to con con come into contact with anti-art, we're going to eventually synthesize art and anti-art till we have a complete understanding of art, and then the end of art arrives because art no longer achieves anything because it has realized. 
Hegelian synthesis. Today, the outline of such conditions appears only in the negativity of the advanced industrial societies. They are societies whose capabilities defy the imagination. No matter what sensibility art may wish to develop, no matter what fawn it may wish to give to no matter what fawn it may wish to give to things, to life, no matter what vision it may wish to communicate, a radical change of experience is within the technical reaches of powers whose terrible imagination organizes the world in their own image and perpetuates ever bigger and better the mutilated experience. So industrial society says is scooping up all this stuff and then it mutilates it by turning it into capitalist consumerist stuff and selling it back to us. That's his general thing. And he says, the industrial societies have such amazing technology. We can do this. We have the ability to take all of this. We have so much power to take all of this and to just completely take up all possibility of art and then mutilate it, mutilate the idea of experience itself. Um, he's very down on, on modern industrial society, as you can tell. However, he says the productive forces chained in the infrastructure of these societies counteract this negativity and progress negativity and progress progress is it mutilates the, ex the more progress we have the more it mutilates experience the more ability we have to explore ideas the more it mutilates direct experience the more uh it takes us away from basically he's probably mad that it keeps us happy and it entertains us and makes us enjoy life and therefore we're not revolutionaries to be sure, he says, the libertarian possibilities of technology and science are effectively contained within the framework of the given reality. Libertarian possibilities of technology and science. So technology and science can set us free, but they're effectively contained within the framework of the given reality. The calculated projection and engineering of human behavior. The frivolous invention of waste and luxurious junk. The experimentation with the limits of endurance and destruction are tokens of the mastery of necessity in the interest of exploitation. Can't possibly just be people enjoying their lives. Has to be mastery of necessity in the interest of exploitation, because he's a friggin' Marxist. Which indicate nevertheless progress in the mastery of necessity. Released from the bondage to exploitation, the imagination sustained by the achievements of science, could turn its productive power to the radical reconstruction of experience and the universe of experience. In this reconstruction, the historical topos of the aesthetic would change. It would find expression in the transformation of the Lebensfeld, society as a work of art. This utopian goal depends, as every stage in the development of freedom did, on a revolution at the attainable level of liberation. So he is talking about obtaining a utopian dream. All we have to do is release from the bondage of exploitation the imagination. Using the achievements of science, we can then we can then re, we can reconstruct experience. We can reconstruct the whole universe of experience. And then the entire topology of the aesthetic world would change. We could turn society itself into a work of art. This is a utopian goal, and it depends on a revolution at the attainable level of liberation. In other words, he says, the transformation is conceivable only as the way in which free men, or rather men in the practice of freeing themselves, shape their lives in solidarity and build an environment in which the struggle for existence loses its ugly and aggressive features. In other words, we have to develop the new sensibility, then whole society will become a work of art, and it's going to take us to a utopia. 
It's only conceivable as the way in which free men, or rather men in the practice of freeing themselves, awakening a critical consciousness, shape their life in solidarity and build an environment in which the struggle for existence loses its ugly and aggressive features. We just need a completely new reality and new men. And then, wow, we could have an aesthetic, beautiful world. The form, capital F, form of freedom is not merely self-determination and self-realization. Right? You don't. Freedom isn't just you determining and realizing you know, make, determining your own life and having self-realization of, of, of who you are and what you want. But rather, he says, the determination and realization of goals which enhance, protect, and unite life on earth. So now for him, freedom means something different. He's making that new language. Freedom isn't just self-determination and self-realization. It is now the determination and realization of certain goals which enhance, protect, and unite life on earth. So it's apparently collectivist. And this autonomy would find expression, so collectivism is autonomy, and this autonomy would find expression not only in the mode of production and production relations, so classical vulgar Marxism, but also in the individual relations among men. So now we're going to go a step further from Marxism. We're now going to talk about culture and interpersonal relationships on top of production and production relations. So he's going beyond Marxism into a deeper neo-Marxism where we have to not just look at production as the Marxists would, but we also have to look at uh, the individual relations among men in their language and in their silence, in their gestures and their looks, in their sensitivity and their love and hate. The beautiful would be an essential quality of their freedom. So we have to change how we relate to one another. We have to use different language. We have to know when to be silent differently. We have to know what is appropriate, when to speak and when to be silent. And the critical theorists will tell us about this. They're going to compel our speech and they're going to compel our silence and our gestures and our looks. You don't want to have that male gaze at the female form. You don't want to accidentally manspread or something. You don't want to offer to help somebody open a door. The feminists, you don't want to open a door for them with your gesture of chivalry or kindness because she's a strong, independent woman, don't need no man. We have to love and hate the things that the critical theorists tell us. Then the beautiful world would be an essential quality of our freedom. But today's rebels against the established culture also rebel against the beautiful in this culture. Don't they ever. Against its all too sublimated, segregated, orderly, harmonizing forms. Oh, so they're good to do that. Today's rebels against the established culture also rebel against the beautiful in this culture because the culture is bad according to Marcuse. Again, why is it bad? Because it, all of its stuff, its forms are all too sublimated, segregated, orderly, and harmonizing. Their libertarian aspirations appear as the negation of the traditional culture, a, a methodical desublimation. Their libertarian aspirations, we're going to say liberatory aspirations, appear as the negation of the traditional culture. Alf Haben der Kultur. The project of the communist revolutionary who helped form the Frankfurt School in the late 19-teens and early 1920s, George Lukács. Alf Haben der Kultur. He says it right there. Their aspirations appear as the negation, Alfhaven, of the traditional culture, their culture. Alfhaven, their culture. Abolish, negate the culture. As a methodical desublimation. Perhaps its strongest impetus comes from social groups which have thus far remained outside the entire realm of the higher culture. 
outside its affirmative, sublimating, and justifying magic. Human beings who have lived in the shadow of this culture, the victims of the power structure, which has been the basis of this culture. You can hear him like whispering like freaking evil here, right? Maybe the its strongest impetus, the strongest rebellion, the people who are going to turn over the culture the most are the losers. The people who have remained outside of the entire realm of the higher culture. Human beings who live in the shadow of this culture. Victims of the power structure which has been the basis of this culture. The whole culture is based on a power structure that excludes certain people and victimizes them. Maybe those people have the strongest impotence to rebellion, to creating a new culture. And they now oppose, he says, to the music of the spheres, which was the most sublime achievement of this culture, their own music. With all the defiance and the hatred and the joy of rebellious victims. Is he talking about the origins of rap? They now oppose to the music of the spheres, which was the most sublime achievement of this culture, their own music, with all the defiance and the hatred and the joy of rebellious victims, defining their own humanity against the definitions of the masters. Hegel's master-slave dialectic. Hello. The black music invading the white culture. He was talking about rap. Maybe it's a little early in the 60s. Black music invading the white culture is the terrifying realization of Ofrende nicht dies. German. Uh, oh, friends, not these tones. Okie dokie. The refusal now hits the chorus which sings the Ode to Joy, the song which is invalidated in the culture that sings it. Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus knows it. I want to revoke the Ninth Symphony. These people are evil. Ode to Joy. Want to revoke the Ninth Symphony. Dr. Faustus, that's a great character to invoke here. And the subversive, dissonant crying and shouting rhythm born in the dark continent and in the deep south of slavery and deprivation. The oppressed revoke the Ninth Symphony and give art a desublimated, sensuous form of frightening immediacy, moving, electrifying the body, and the soul materialized in the body. Black music is originally music of the oppressed, illuminating the extent to which the higher culture and its sublime sublimations, its beauty, have been class-based. The affinity between black music and its avant-gardistic white development, that'd be Eminem, and the, politi the political rebellion, it's really Elvis Presley or something, and the political rebellion against the affluent society bears witness to the increasing desublimation of culture, which is exactly why you watch all of these fellas, these these black gentlemen on the YouTube doing their reaction videos, listening to Beethoven's, say, Ninth Symphony for the first time, and crying their eyes out at the beauty. That's why, right? Thanks, Marcuse. Thanks, Marcuse. I do like your description, though, of the, of the dark continent, deep south music that revokes the Ninth Symphony and gives art a desublimated, sensuous form of frightening immediacy, moving, electrifying the body and the soul, materializing the body. So I guess he liked rock and roll. It is still the simple elementary negation, the antithesis position of the immediate denial. I read that wrong, actually. It is still the simple elementary negation, the antithesis. Colon. Position of the immediate denial. See, he's it, the left moves dialectically. It is a dialectical religion that's trying to do hermetic alchemy, and it has a Gnostic goal in mind that they call 
consciousness or critical consciousness or conscientista chow. I might have said that right again in Brazilian. That's what they're talking about. It is a it is a hermetic Gnostic faith rooted in primarily Hegel uh, in his his mystical meanderings. This desublimation, he says, leaves the traditional culture, the illusionist art behind unmastered. Their truth and their claims remain valid next to and together with the rebellion within the same given society. The rebellious music, literature, art are thus easily absorbed and shaped by the market and rendered harmless. In order to come to their own, they would have to abandon the direct appeal. So he's a hipster, right? I mean, hipsters were the, the hipsters are almost all woke. They're the precursors to woke in our modern society. But being hip back in the 60s, being a hipster back in the 60s, meant that you were woke to power structures. Now he's a hipster, right? He's like the rebellious music, literature, art are therefore are thus easily absorbed and shaped by the market and rendered harmless. Yeah, you got to know the band before the, the band becomes known. He's a hipster. In order to come into their own, they would have to abandon the direct appeal. They can't go the route of Green Day, right? Raw immediacy. The raw immediacy of their presentations, which invokes in the protest the familiar university, a universe of politics and business. So these guys are trying to appeal to punk rock, and that's why they were able to take off so much. There were hippie culture, punk rock, peace and love, you know, rock and roll. They were tapping into all the cool stuff where the stodgy conservatives of the 60s and 70s were not there. This is not boding well for them now because their art sucks and there is cool stuff going on everywhere else. This is a very encouraging thing to read right here. Anyway, uh, was it not precisely... Oh, sorry, I skipped some. In order to come into their own, they would have to abandon the direct appeal, the raw immediacy of their presentation. In other words, if they, they want to come into their own, they have to do a Green Day. They have to make a deal. And even though Green Day still was pretty good uh, and a lot of people liked it which invokes in the protest the familiar universe of politics and business, and with it the helpless familiarity of frustration and temporary release from frustration. Was it not precisely the rupture with this familiarity, which was the methodical goal of radical art, of punk rock? Wasn't that the point? Is to break from this familiarity? Wasn't that the goal of punk rock? The abrogation of the estrangement effect, which to a considerable extent was also operative in the great illusionist art, defeats the radicalism of today's art. Thus the living theater founders to the degree to which it is living, to which we immediately identify ourselves with the actors, experience our familiar sympathies, empathies, and antipathies. The theater does not transcend this familiarity, this deja vu, it strengthens it. Just like the more and more organized happenings, like the ever more marketable pop art, this ambiance creates a deceptive community within the society. So he's, I think he's afraid of it all being astroturfed by the consumer society or scooped up by the consumer society, all that rebellious spirit in the music and the, the, the art taken away from him. And isn't that, if woke was a counterculture, isn't that what's happened now? Now that like every company like Disney woke, like that, that's just, it's just wrecked. It's just, it's just corporate garbage now, right? (laughs) Capitalism always wins, Marcuse. Capitalism always wins. The conquest of this immediate familiarity, the mediations, which would make the many forms of rebellious art a liberating force on the societal scale, that is to say a subverting force, are yet to be attained. They would reside in the modes of work and pleasure, of thought and behavior, in a technology and in a natural environment which express the aesthetic ethos of socialism. Oh, okay. 
ah, yeah, hmm, yeah, okay, all this crap about punk rock and all that, no, it's not the real thing unless it's going to express the aesthetic ethos of socialism. Aha, uh-huh. yeah, because um, that's great. Then he says art may have lost its privileged and segregated dominion over the imagination, the beautiful, the dream. This may be the future, but the future ingresses into the present in its negativity. The desublimating art and anti-art of today anticipate a stage where society's capacity to produce may be akin to the creative capacity of art and the construction of the world of art akin to the reconstruction of the real world. So maybe this is Baudrillard's hyperreality being um, predicted. Union of liberating art and liberating technology. That's what he sees. That's what he's calling for. By virtue of this anticipation, the disorderly, uncivil, farcical, artistic desublimation of culture constitutes an essential element of radical politics of the subverting forces in transition, which is also the title of the next section, which is the end of section two, A New Sensibility. The next section is section three, Subverting Forces in Transition. Um, it's actually pretty mental. I'm looking forward to reading this for you. So a kind of a quick summary. The first section of this essay, a biological foundation for socialism makes the awkward case that we have to change man if we want liberation, which is liberated socialism, which is a form of communism, but no bureaucracy. So it'll be great this time. It'll work and it'll be kind of like a hippie commune and everybody's going to have fun. There's going to be cool art and we're going to have very erotic play and everything's going to be very sensual and blah, blah, blah. We just have to change man biologically to get there. We have to change the level of his needs. We have to make him psychologically different than he is. That's what he really means by that. And then when when he becomes basically mentally ill in the right way, then we can utilize him to have a revolutionary force. And then that's going to allow us to cultivate a new sensibility where the old ways, man, they're out, man. I don't need any of that, man. We're going to have a new sensibility, man. And that new sensibility has to look towards socialism or it's going to be garbage and it's not going to work. And that's why we have to use it to create the new sensibility of a... Uh, of, of, a, of a new rational socialist world that we're all going to go into. We're going to invoke. We're going to. We're going to actually create a new rationality out of critical consciousness. That's one of the things that he argues. And that the the reason is we need a new sensibility is because art and aesthetic and everything that moves the human spirit is all constrained by the existing sen- sensibility. So we need a new sensibility if we're going to be liberated. And that new sensibility has to be socialistic in nature. So we have to change man psychologically or biologically in order to be accepting of liberation. And then we have to inculcate him with a new sensibility, a new socialist sensibility of life. This is how life really should look. This is what life should feel like. Now, the scary part is, is if you talk to the young people who all seem to, not all, but a lot of them, a a scary number of them seem to be very positive towards socialism, even though it's democratic socialism or outright communism, they think it's going to be this wonderful thing. They have been indoctrinated and programmed with this new sensibility that Marcuse is talking about. This isn't just like, what a nut job. This is actually something that has been, since 1969 when he wrote it, systematically employed by the intelligentsia in the universities and by the counterculture activists that he tied in with. So this is, like when you see like the burgeoning amount of young people who are into socialism, this is why. His idea that was central to the new left activism, whether it's through hippies, whether it's through counterculture, kind of punk rock kind of stuff, was to invoke a new sensibility geared toward the positivity of socialism. Now, of course, we could talk about the redwashing of education and how that played an important and key role, but this was what he was talking about. This is one of the, again, a very influential essay written in the 1960s by one of the most influential leftist thinkers, the father of the new left, Herbert Marcuse, an essay on liberation from 1969. And he's 
you can see the echoes. You can see the impact that this has had. I've said before that we were living in the logic of repressive tolerance, but we very much live in the logic, or we, we very much live in the world that Herbert Marcuse envisioned because we were not courageous enough, and we were not strong enough, we were not sensible enough, and I will say that with absolute and firm conviction, that we were not sensible enough to stand up against this stupid leftist garbage when we should have been. This should have been rooted out in the 70s. It should have been absolutely dead by the 80s, but we've allowed it to grow and to fester. It had a burst in the 90s where it almost took over again. It got stamped back a bit, and now it is running amok and recreating the awful conditions of the late 1960s going into the early 1970s. And we're gonna, we should expect that. And it's also being used as the tool to usher in some new sensibility world order uh, with a great reset or whatever. So this is a very concerning set of developments. Um, but I'm proud and happy to present to you now, finally, the second um, section of Herbert Marcuse's essay on liberation, a new sensibility for socialism, of course. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll catch you with part three soon. Mm -hmm.